Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. The Unclaimed Property Division is holding unclaimed funds from medical bills, uncashed paychecks, savings accounts, and more. To see if you have unclaimed money, you can visit findmassmoney.gov. DCU is proud to sponsor this conversation from Boston Public Radio. More at dcu.org. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, members of the Senate return from their August recess this week, facing a voting rights measure the Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion says is a make-or-break moment for American democracy. If it doesn't pass, he's holding Manchin, Cinema, and Biden accountable. E.J. will join us. Then forget the unvaccinated. Are the vaccinated getting dangerously mask-weary? We'll ask you. Then the five major candidates for Boston mayor are making their final push to voters ahead of the preliminary election tomorrow. Bay State Banner senior editor Yahoo Miller will join us to break down what voters are saying matters in the election. It's all ahead on Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy. Marjorie Egan is on. Are you ready? <laughs> Jury duty. Let's hope she doesn't get the Elizabeth Holmes case or she won't be back till spring sitting in for, I can't wait to hear that story also, sitting in for her today from NECN and current on NBC LX and the South End News and Bay Window. She's aye, a co-publisher aye. of both those things. I'm it's done awesome. with that. Is Sue O'Connell. Hi, Sue. How Hello, are you? Mr. Browdy. How are you today? I you said, ever done jury duty? I have. I've, I served on a full trial once. Even you did? Though how long did that take? It took, actually, it was one of those, like, four days. They promised us four days. Yeah. Even though the South End News had reported on the story that we were covering. Really? And I was the publisher. Um, I was seated on the trial. I mean, we didn't. It was just a report. It wasn't. We editorialized yeah, on the crime. Ethics is but. so outdated. So yeah, forget who about cares? That. In any case, yeah. good to have you good here. Good to see you. Members of the Senate, as you just heard on the national NPR news, returned from their August recess today, and they're faced with a number of items such as a voting rights measure, actually two, and an ambitious infrastructure spending package. In his latest column in the Washington Post, E.J. Dion writes, without a hint of hyperbole. That this is a make-or-break moment for democracy, saying that failing to enact a Democrat social policy plan would be a big problem and that failing to protect democratic rule would be catastrophic. He joins us online to talk through this and other political headlines. In addition to being a Washington Post columnist, E.J. is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His latest book is Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. E.J., wonderful to talk to you, as always. It is so good to be back, and uh, God bless Marjorie for doing her civic duty, uh, and we'll miss her. I agree. I hope she doesn't get one of those long trials. <laughs> oh and great to be with you, Sue. Could I say one other thing? Sure. Everybody get out to vote. Uh, the uh, preliminary election in Boston, as the news uh, reported earlier and as you guys have covered closely, is tomorrow. A number of other cities are voting. And for the California listeners of the show, tomorrow <laughs> yes. is also... 
the last day to vote in the California recall. Maybe we can touch on that before we are over. So use your constitutional rights just as Marjorie is on jury duty. Yes, and she, I'd also civic, know... She, civic lecture ends <laughs> right there. And she's Promise. being required to show up because the federal government and state governments are requiring her to show up. We'll get to that in a minute. But wait a second. Well, but you wait, know what, Sue, I want to you, caution... You get, even though EJ is a full, full, a fellow full riverite, we don't want you to vote like Marjorie because, as we have learned on certain days, she is going to the she has gone to the wrong location on the wrong day. EJ is urging you to do it correctly. Yes. Is that correct, EJ? Uh, well, yes. Although I think it should be made a lot easier for people who go on the to the wrong location. Uh, the wrong day is a problem. But Sue gave me an opening. My friend Miles Rappaport and I have a book coming out in February. On compulsory uh, attendance at the polls, which means Amen. you don't have to vote for anybody, but you got to show up or 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 vote by send a ballot in by mail. It can be a blank ballot. It works very well in Australia. Uh, the book is called One Hundred Percent Democracy. So, Sue, God bless you for letting me plug a book months in advance. <laughs> it was by accident, too. But I also want to talk. Yeah, right. we, want... we didn't plan that. Uh... <laughs> want to talk about your, your column, uh, which, you know, I, I, I don't know about you. But I actually know, EJ, you probably feel a little bit of fatigue over the past uh, six years of uh, covering things that are happening. Um, you make the point, as, as Jim noted in your column, that, um, you know, we journalists love to talk about these defining moments and these turning points and this breaker, you know, break it or make it moment. Moment uh, in democracy, but you have some really strong points about how what's happening in D.C. or will not happen in D.C. Uh, actually could be crucial to define the future of American democracy. Well, first, thank you for pointing out that I do start that way because you know journalists always say this is the defining moment, whether it is or not. It's a good lead. It might get a story on the front page or whatever the equivalent of that is online these days. Um, and, you know, I am, um, I, I am you, you pointed out being sick of politics. Like Marjorie, I grew up in Fall River, where bred never to be sick of politics, where I come from. But, yeah, I really think that we, what we are confronting over, and it'll happen pretty fast. It'll happen by the end of the month, perhaps, on Biden's Build Back Better plan, which includes the physical infrastructure bill that's already passed the Senate, but this proposal for... Uh, what looks now to be $3.5 trillion in spending uh, to provide for a child tax credit to help people raise their families, uh, help on child care, elder care, help on education and health care. It really is a reconstruction of our social contract, which has left a lot of people uh, out across races, uh, across classes, by obviously people uh, who are less well-off or middle-class. Um, one of the things I try to do in the column on that is to point out that, yeah, $3.5 trillion is a lot of money, but it's over 10 years, and our expected gross domestic product over those 10 years is around $288 trillion. So what we're talking about is 1.2% of GDP to make our social contract stronger and our economy just a little bit fairer. Uh, and I think that we've got to start keeping in mind that, yes, this is a lot of money, but when you look at the whole economy, it's a very small investment. But the, to me, the make-or-break fight, I, I think all the stuff in the Build Back Better bill is important, and Democrats, if they can't pass this, 
uh, I think we will see the return of those dreaded Democrats in disarray headlines uh, that you've seen over decades. Um, but the vote, voting rights is existential. And the, one of the points I make in the column, Lincoln talked famously about not being able to survive as a country half slave and half free. I really think the metaphor here is a country half democratic and half undemocratic. We have a lot of states that embraced the successes of the 2020 campaign in allowing people to vote more easily, and we got an extraordinary turnout. It's great that in Boston, in tomorrow's preliminary, lots of people have already voted by mail because the city made it easy. Um, all these states are rolling, not only rolling back easier voting, but putting new obstacles in the way and uh, making it so that partisan bodies can take over the counting of ballots, essentially, if people don't like the results, and these are Republican states, so if Republican bodies don't like the results, we'll say, well, let's sort of take over the counting of the ballots. That's Hungarian uh, democracy or worse. Uh, and so I, in the column, I express guarded hope and prayer that uh, people who are resisting changing the filibuster in the Senate, Joe Manchin, uh, Kristen Sinema, and up to now sort of President Biden, are going to say, you know, democracy matters more than arcane filibuster rules. And the good news, I think, is this week we are going to see a voting rights bill unveiled, I think it's, it's on track to be unveiled, that is based on Joe Manchin's own principles. So the challenge to Manchin will be, if the Republicans, if you can't convince 10 Republicans to vote with you, and if he does, I, I write in the column, he'll deserve canonization because that would be a miracle. But if he can't get 10 Republicans, are you really going to sit by and let your own principles be filibustered? That's the choice we're going to face in the next month. By the way, uh, on that latter note, the voting rights thing we discussed on the show when it happened, it's clear that one of the things that Manchin wants is a voter ID requirement. It seemed to me when people like Stacey Abrams and Senator Warnock said they could live with it, uh, it sounded like that may be the area for compromise. But I want to go back to the 3.5. Uh, just real quick, Jim, yeah. could I say, I, I'm, I'm I, like you, a kind of skeptic of voter ID because it's been used uh, to keep people from voting. The voter ID that's in this bill could actually make things better in some of those How states. Because so? it allows all sorts of things to be used as voter ID, easy things to get like your utility bill, as opposed to having, you know, even though you don't drive a car, you have to go to the DMV or somewhere to get a certain kind of voter ID. So the voter ID provision in this bill, you know, if you ask me, I would do without it. But the provision in this bill is really not onerous and might conceivably loosen things up in the states like Texas, where you can use a uh, concealed carry permit, but you can't use a government-issued mm. student ID at University of Texas or any of the other schools in that great system. That's ridiculous. Let's go back to the $3.5 trillion, though. Here is uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. He was on CNN's State of the Union yesterday and was asked if not the $3.5 trillion. Uh, Dana Bash asked, what's the size of a reconciliation package he would be willing to get behind? Here they are. So what's the number? And the bottom line is what the number would be what, what's going to be competitive in our tax code. I believe that the corporate rate should be at 25, not 21. But what's the overall number for the budget you know, bill? I think that you're going to have to look at it and find out what you're able to do through a reasonable, responsible way. So then and how do you know that it's not 3.5? It's going to be at 1, 
one and a half. We don't know where it's going to be. So you think ballpark one, one and a half? It's not going to be at three and a half, I can assure you. You know, E.J. Dion, the thing I didn't understand about Manchin and don't understand about Manchin's positions is he basically saying, I'll only support spending that gets, that is covered by revenue raising, or is there some other inhibitor with him vis-a-vis the three and a half trillion dollar package? I think the very shrewd listeners to this program will notice that he evaded and evaded and evaded in terms of uh, Dana Bash's uh, questions about, well, what number would you Mm -hmm. support? And he kind of tossed out that other number at the end, but all the other answers in front said, well, we'll find a number, and he didn't want to commit. And I think... Uh, you know, what I believe to be the case, and I, I have some reason to believe this from talking to people up on the Hill, is that Democrats, whether so-called moderates or so-called progressives, understand that if they don't deliver on a very substantial chunk of Biden's uh, program, um, they're going to be in big trouble going forward. Uh, and so I think it's quite clear Manchin can get closer to the 35 uh, that, uh, then the, you know, that, that one million dollar, mm-hmm. million, a trillion dollar number he mentioned at the end, or one and a half. But you're right. The other thing is how much of this will be paid for. And I think this puts moderates in a box because a lot of them are saying we want this to be fiscally responsible. A lot of the progressives want it to be fiscally responsible. Uh, and so in order to not put all of this on the deficit, there are going to have to be some tax increases. There was, there's already been some give on Joe Manchin. He says uh, 25% on the corporate tax. I think Congressman Richie Neal from Massachusetts, chair of the Ways and Means Committee, has something like 26.5% uh, on the uh, corporate tax. Uh, I think Manchin could go that extra point and a half. Um, and I think that um, the more you pay for, the easier it will be to uh, pass a larger package. So there's a lot to play for. And the one advantage of bills involving money, uh, when you're compromising on taxes and compromising on spending, there's a lot of room for deal-making, especially within $3.5 trillion. So uh, all along I thought that, you know, I thought the physical infrastructure bill would, would pass. It did. I just do not think Democrats want to blow up their chance uh, to make very substantial changes that are popular. Almost everything in this bill is popular. We're speaking with E.J. Dion from The Washington Post. E.J., a lot of (laughs) – I'm a little excited that folks are talking so much about Justice Stephen um, Breyer as if he's like a quarterback somewhere. Will he retire? Will he come back for another season? Uh, you know, he's been uh, quite outspoken and even recently that everyone's entitled to their own opinion about his retirement. But, um, you know, considering what's happening in Texas and what's happening with the Supreme Court um, and obviously on the heels of, uh, of uh, the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg last term, um, folks are, are starting to talk more and more about this. Uh, what are your thoughts on if we should be talking about it and if it's time for President Biden to take Justice Breyer out to lunch for that talk? 
Well, I think I can make one prediction that will be true, which is even Tom Brady won't play into his 80s. Uh, and, and, I don't know about that. Uh, I, I know. I mean, it's a, it's a risky prediction, but I'm going to make it anyway. Um, the, uh, I've already written myself that I think Justice Breyer should uh, retire. My colleague Ruth Marcus had a great uh, column I thought over the weekend on his new book where he's trying to argue that the court isn't partisan and mm-hmm. you know Amy Coney Barrett uh, Justice Barrett gave a speech saying we're not partisan we're based on certain principles except those principles as Ruth pointed out in her column increasingly coincide with party principles uh, and we've already gotten a lesson from the uh, Justice Ginsburg God bless her but she declined to retire when the Democrats go to fill the seat and look where the court has gone. Uh, and so I think uh, you know, uh, Justice Breyer has clearly signaled he won't listen to anybody who's his critic. And you know, I've been very uh, you know, admiring of uh, him in many ways. I've written columns about, for example, an earlier book he wrote that provided a really good alternative to the judicial theories of the late Antonin Scalia. So I have a lot of respect for him. But I think at this point, the danger to the very principles that he outlined in that earlier book of his is so extraordinary that, yes, it is time for him to retire. Uh, and so if it takes uh, – I hope it doesn't take President Biden to do it because Lord knows that would be turned into a scandal if it ever uh, became public. So let's not have President Biden do it himself. But a lot of his closest friends have to say, you will be better remembered if you know when it's time to open the court. And Lord knows there are plenty of law schools that would love to have Justice Stephen Breyer on their faculties. (laughs) You know, by the way, uh, he doesn't only have to listen to his friends. When Justice Breyer was kind enough to join me on Greater Boston a couple of years ago, he acknowledged in a flash that he supported term limits for Supreme Court uh, justices. He said they should be long ones, but he himself believed above and beyond the political implications you're talking about, there should be uh, term limits. So hopefully he will listen to himself as well. I think you should write a column, Jim. I think you should write a column (laughs) quoting the good justice on this uh, excellent idea. I actually did (laughs) in the Boston Globe magazine a few years ago. And by the way, in Uh, that that column... uh, uh, well, I thought fairly shockingly, but courageously, former Chief Justice Margaret Marshall mm-hmm. uh, said she endorsed term limits, even if it, and I followed up and asked her, even if it meant that someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have to step down, and her answer was yes. So uh, there seems to be a growing body of uh, support for that, and I hope the uh, justice is listening, because I'm an admirer of his, too. You know, EJ, you wrote a piece the other day which will give me an opportunity to mention something that I couldn't figure out how to fit in this show because it almost made my head I, pop I, I, off. My job is to create excuses. <laughs> you did, and you did it beautifully. You wrote a piece, the title of which was, We Best Remember 9-11 by Moving Beyond It. And if you want to talk about what you were saying, it's fine. But it gives me an opportunity to mention another aspect of 9-11 that, that I'm hoping you can explain to me. Former Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama all went to... Uh, uh, events commemorating, obviously, uh, 9-11. I think uh, President Bush, I believe, went to Pennsylvania. Right. And the others were at uh, Ground Zero. Uh, Donald Trump went with his son to uh, uh, give color commentary on a boxing match, including one of the contestants, the 59-year-old former heavyweight champion Evander Holyfield. 
Can you explain to me why even, I know the Fifth Avenue line, which I'm so sick of, I can't see straight. Why do Trumpists not hold against Donald Trump the callous disregard for one of the most important days in our at least recent history and and the way he just blew it off yesterday? Can you try to explain that to me, E.J. Dion? I, I fairly long ago gave up on trying to explain things I can't explain. I mean, I think it's very consistent with Trump to break with what every, everyone expects as normal and decent. And, uh, I, you know, and for all I know, who knows if he was paid for that gig or not. Um, but I think he figures that uh, his base would rather... Um, you know, have him do something like this than join a bunch of establishment politicians, otherwise known as former presidents of the United States. But I do want to say this. I think it was it was better. Uh, I didn't want Donald Trump there. The other presidents understand uh, how to commemorate an event uh, like this. And, you know, in the column you cited, I'm actually quite critical of President Bush for first, you know, his initial response, I thought was very good. And then uh, he and his administration, uh, I think, was complete, were complicit in politicizing 9-11 to make the case for Iraq. But he did a great thing in his talk where he warned us about the attacks that are coming domestically from yep. the extreme right. And he talked about January 6th. Good for him mm-hmm. for doing that. Um, and so I think the country as a whole was better off for Trump just going to that uh, uh, that wrestling, uh, that boxing, boxing, boxing. pay per view boxing. Yeah. So there you go, yeah. EJ. You mentioned it at the top of the segment that tomorrow is the uh, the recall election in California. We uh, don't have like five hours to explain to our listeners um, how you have to vote even if you don't want to recall and what will happen with the majority, but not the full majority. But this, you know, is it too easy in California to 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 call these recalls, I know that they are, um, I don't know if they've ever been successful, which is a reason why people say we could keep doing it. But at the same time, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's right. That's you know, a one time, right? The recall of Gray Davis some years ago. Yeah, and that was, I think, the one. I, but is it time to make it a little bit more difficult for Californians to say they don't like their governor and go through this hullabaloo? Yes, uh, is the answer that. And they ought to make it under the recall law in uh, California. Uh, let's say that I, I think Ray Davis is going to win, and I want to get to that briefly. The recall is going down, but um, if uh, Gray, if um, uh, uh, I say Gray Davis, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I meant Gavin, Gavin Newsom. Newsom. If Gavin Newsom, uh, if forty-nine point nine percent vote no and fifty point one percent vote yes, then it's a runoff with like forty plus names on the ballot. Somebody getting the the, the lead candidate among the alternatives is a guy called Larry Elder, a right-wing talk show host, who's getting 23%. So, in a sense, a Newsom could beat Elder 49.9 exactly. to 23, and Elder becomes governor. That is why Newsom is going to win. He's brilliantly turned the recall not into a referendum about him, but into a referendum about, do you really want this right-wing guy uh, to become governor? And so the polling for the last several weeks has been moving Gavin Newsom's way, um, and uh, I, I think it would be shocking if he doesn't win, and maybe even by a pretty uh, decent margin. So two points here. One, yes, recalls should be harder. The, uh, um, and two, they have to rejigger the ballot to figure out how not to have a minority 
a governor elected, maybe separate the recall from a new election, maybe let the lieutenant governor become governor, which would reduce the partisan incentives for recalls. Um, but number two, there's a template here for Democrats running this fall for governor in off-off year races in Virginia uh, and New Jersey and in the 2022 elections, which is, um, and Biden has set this up, if Republicans are against mask mandates, if they're against um, mandates for vaccinations, are they really going to keep us in this COVID mess indefinitely? Um, and Newsom has really gained some ground by saying, you know, I, our state did quite well during the pandemic, which California did do. Um, and you really want to throw those policies overboard. And I think that'll win him the race. That's tomorrow, as is Boston, as EJ uh, told us. EJ, it's great to talk to you as always. We hope Marjorie has returned next week. We shall see. Thanks, uh, Great joy to be with you. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks so much. EJ Dion joins us regularly. He's a columnist for The Washington Post, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and his latest book is Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. Coming up, COVID still here. We're going to take your calls. Are you ready to take masking seriously? So keep your dial on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Marjorie is on jury duty. We don't know what's going on with that, if she got picked or whatever. Sue O'Connell from NECN, etc., is sitting in. On May 28th, the state lifted its mask mandate. That was two months later, the CDC, I'm sure you remember, recommended the return of indoor masking. Today, we can't go anywhere indoors without masking up. And with summer winding down, physical distancing guidelines no, lo- guidelines, excuse me, no longer in place to offer that extra protection, we're asking you, are you back to taking masking seriously? Remember when you were looking for the real N95 mask or at least double masking? Do you feel like hygiene theater throwing on a, uh, the last of your disposable mask just to make it past the CVS security guard is no longer enough? And if you're vaccinated, do you resent having to wear a mask to protect the unvaccinated? And if you have kids who aren't vaccinated... In solidarity, are you masking up indoors and out? 877-301-8970. And most critically, of course, if you're holding off on ordering more masks, you're starting to think it's time to re-up and mask up. 877-301-8970. I I have to say, I am somebody, Sue, who has played by all the Mm -hmm. rules, I think, at least if I haven't, it was unintentional on on all of this... uh, uh, COVID protocol stuff for the whole year and a half. But I have to say, I really do resent in a big time kind of way having to wear a mask primarily. I mean, I'm fine when I'm in the presence of kids under 12 years old, obviously masking up. But the fact that I have to wear a mask as a fully vaccinated person to protect these people who have still chosen to be unvaccinated is really hard for I do it, but it is psychologically Really hard. You a masker? Yeah, or no? no, I'm with you. I'm um, uh, my kid. My kid uh, falls into a category where we really wouldn't want her to get. We don't want anyone to get the virus, but we really don't want her to get COVID. So we are uh, very strictly masking. Plus, for me, I don't want to forget it. Like <laughs> I wear it sometimes just so that when I have to go somewhere, I I have I have to remember to put it on. I have it with me. Mm-hmm. You know, my I lost last week a former colleague. 
um, that I had just reconnected with and to spent COVID? some time with to COVID. I didn't know that. Um, I'm sorry. Found out that he was unvaccinated, right? We had spent oh some time God. in Nantucket together. And, you know, shockingly, someone my age, an uh, associate that we work with. Um, her dad died from a breakthrough infection. He was 85. He passed away last week. So, you know, my viewpoint on it is I'm tired of unvaccinated people. I'm angry at my friend who died. I'm angry at him. I'm angry uh, for his, you know, losing uh, his family, losing him. And I'm angry that it makes my mourning, you know, and grieving for him complicated because now I'm angry at him. Um, and at the same time, you know, I'm, I, I can wear a mask for the rest of my life, and uh, I'm just going to keep doing that until we get to a place. But, you know, I do hate the sort of dance of it where I'm cautious around people who have kids that I know are vaccinated. I'm back at the office. I'm able to go to work over at uh, NBC10 Boston and NECN where we're still at a limited capacity uh, and we're masking um, as often as we can and as carefully as we can. And a lot of my colleagues who have kids are masking all the time, even though they're vaccinated because their kids aren't. So, you know, I'm I'm angry at some people. I'm exhausted from it, on the other hand, and I'm, I guess I'm sort of resigned to it as well. I've got re- colorful ones. I've got this yellow one. I've got pink ones. I have know? actually a listener <laughs> made a ton of them, and I bought some yep. for him. He did make beautiful ones. But when you – that throwaway line, you we'll get to your calls in a second, by the way, at 877-301-8970 on the mask front. When you – that throwaway line you used a minute ago, I'm prepared to do it for the rest of my life. A lot of people are serious about this. This is the – this is – the way not only of the future but the permanent future are you did you mean that literally no, if covid is going to be um uh something that is still killing us and um the vaccination numbers don't move or the vaccines don't get better at preventing breakthrough and prevent i mean they're great but you know we don't know what the next variant is so we know what it is but we don't know what the one after that um i'm fine not wearing it and taking my chances with a cold and a sinus infection and getting back mm. to regular life but if COVID is going to be like it is now, I'm just I, I, I'm just going to wear a mask until we get to whatever the next stage is that we can be safer. Again, that stage would be here quickly if people would get vaccinated, right? And you know that's what I'm hoping that we can impart upon people. It's really there's no reason not to be vaccinated at this point. If you are medically able to, there's no reason for you not to be. I'm with you. So we want to know, though, not so much about vaccinations, but about masks, about what your mask behavior is and what your mask attitudes are at 877-301-8970. Richard Nakar, you would be first with Sue O'Connell and me, Jim Browdy. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? Great to talk to you. We're good. Thanks. Nice to talk to you, too. I am on my way to donate platelets at the Red Cross. Good for you. I will be there for three hours. I'll be wearing an industrial strength N95 mask. Uh, I mask up anytime I'm indoors. It doesn't matter whether it's required or not. I'm a senior citizen. I've had three Moderna shots, and I can see myself uh, wearing a mask forever if necessary. I am mildly resentful for people who uh, don't vaccinate and don't mask. But, you know, hey, so 
That's where I am. It is what it is, I think, is what your motto is, Richard. <laughs> Richard, good for you I, for making not, the donation. That is far from my motto. I hate that expression, and right. if I never hear it again, <laughs> it can go into the dustbin of history. Too late. Thank you. <laughs> Richard, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. 877 89, uh, 89, is uh, the number. Where do you want to go? Let's go uh, let's talk to Jane. Uh, Jane, you're calling us from Norfolk. Welcome. Hi, Jane. Hi there. How are you? Great. Good. Thank you. Good. Love your show. I Thanks. just wanted to say I'm a mom of two little kids who cannot be vaccinated, and I'm, like, waiting first in line to get them vaccinated. And I mm. am starting to get very, very tired of this as well, as everyone is. Um, but I don't understand what's happened to humanity i mean back in my day i'm 47 i'm an old hen but i just remember i remember for a little for a five-year-old i am i am i have a five-year-old and then, but i don't understand why no one has a sense of community and caring for their neighbor and looking out for one another and and why everyone is so selfish because this is a community health issue um and so i'm white knuckling it with my kids at school hearing about how kids are not wearing masks and taking them off, and I got a breakthrough infection working at a summer camp this summer, um, and I was vaccinated, and um, I didn't feel great, but I was definitely better than when I had it in January of 2020, wow. um, where I was sick for three and a half months. So I'm living proof that the vaccine works, but if we keep letting this go and people don't vaccinate, there's going to be so many more variants, and we're just going to keep getting further and further behind where we need to be. And so that's why I'm super frustrated. I don't think this should be a political thing. This is this is about caring for each other. This is a community thing. I had a really I had a hard time this past weekend with the September 11th um, commemoration in reflecting on all the things that we as a society have sacrificed uh, in in the idea of preventing future terrorist attacks. And we could do an entire show on whether there's some things we shouldn't point. have done and some things we should have done more. You know, and I had explained, my daughter said to me, everyone keeps saying things changed after 9-11. Of course, she's 21, so, you know, her whole life has been post-9-11. Um, uh, and I listed some of the things that we now do that we didn't do before. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we're talking about masks and vaccinations. How hard is it to wear a mask? Not as hard as the changes we've had to endure because of 9-11. Right. That is a wonderful point. Hey, Jane, can I ask you something as a mother of young kids? Do you, I I mean, obviously you wear a mask to protect them, but do you also wear a mask because you want to normalize it for your kids so that they, even if you didn't have to? What? Yes, I actually wear it. um, That's a great question. I actually do wear it to model for them. That's that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I actually lived through 9/11. I was in Gateway Plaza down oh, in Battery boy. Park City oh, when it happened. So I can totally understand what you're saying. We put all these checkpoints in place. I feel so blessed and lucky that I was able to have children and live through that. Mm-hmm. And and this is just it's for people who've been through trauma. It is um, super insulting because it kind of makes you get back into that fight or flight um, sort of pattern where. Where, and you feel like you're just hitting your head against the wall because nobody, it's like people don't care. They just you know, Jane, care. you mentioned, before you go away, you mentioned uh, uh, the, the sick politics around this. And it reminded me of a New York Times uh, piece I read over the weekend where uh, the, do you know what the, the state that has led the United States in childhood vaccinations for years has been, and they brag about it, is Mississippi. Let me right. repeat that. Mississippi leads the nation in vaccinations Yet the governor of Mississippi is railing against 
the mandated vaccination on COVID-19. What more proof do you need that it is totally about politics? Yeah, they have, an, pe- they have an incredible infrastructure to deliver yes, yes. vaccines, which is why they lead in their vaccination rate on other things. And it's, it's you know, Jim, I was in your favorite place. Jane, the, you were great, by the way. Thank you for thanks, the call. Thanks, Jane. Stay safe. I was at your favorite place in the world uh, in August, Disney. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Which I know I thought about you on a regular basis on my vacation for a whole number of reasons. But Disney uh, in Florida had um, mandated masking even outdoors in line. If you were in line for a ride, even if it was an outdoor line, it was mandated masking. Wait, and does the Governor DeSantis allow that? Or I don't, think he's gonna, I don't think he's going to take on, on Disney. I yeah, mean, I, we right. stayed on property. Every restaurant we were masked. Every uh, uh, transport we were masked. Uh, we interacted with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I saw four people not wearing a mask when they were support, supposed to. Every single kid but one <laughs> was wearing a mask without complaint. Um, and it just it, it when you when you put the peer pressure on, like you can't get on the bus to go to Disney yeah, that you paid three hundred dollars for. No problem. No, that's right. And by the way, for those who don't know what Sue's referencing, and you know my attitude <laughs> about Disney the one time I went. If you've ever been waterboarded, you can understand what it's like to go <laughs> to Disney. That's a new ride now. They have That's... that now after. It's, it's replacing one of their old racist rides. <laughs> Susan in Granville, you're on uh, Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling, Susan. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Um, so I, you know, kind of restating some of what's already been said, but I am fully vaccinated. Um, And I am pretty resentful of having to wear a mask everywhere again. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, I live out in Western Mass in a kind of rural town, but only 50% of the town is vaccinated. And there was a big outbreak a couple weeks ago because of, I think, a funeral. And uh, there are many people just refuse to get vaccinated and don't tell people you know, when they get in the car with them, they're not vaccinated. Oh my God. Don't, you know, just don't inform people and, um, and just refuse. And I, and so I just, it's really upsetting to me. I, I kind of agree. It's like, why don't we think about the greater good? And I also find it interesting not to get off the topic, but, you know, people kind of say, well, this is my body. If I don't want to do that, that's I should re- have to. Yeah. But then when the, with the uh, abortion issue in Texas, it's a whole different, you know, it's the other side. So they're kind of talking about both sides of their mouth, I think. But That's shocking, um, Susan, for them to be talking <laughs> about both sides of their mouth. Yeah. Susan, thank you uh, for <laughs> the call. You know, Susan's saying how it's not difficult. Yeah, your 9-11 point is a wonderful point is the inconveniences that we have chosen to endure for the most part. And the part, rights that we've given up. The, exactly. the, what about the rights we've given up? In or, uh, it's, you know, it's just astonishing to me that just to put a mask on, you know, I, I too uh, went to a, a, a wake a couple of weeks ago, a wake and a funeral, um, and there were just a couple of us wearing masks. This is before uh, it was, it was mm-hmm. following guidelines of the town that we were in. And and I, I was resentful that I felt I was robbed the ability to participate in the way that I would have wanted to participate because folks didn't think that, you know, wearing a mask would be helpful to others. So I'm angry. Yes, Jim, I'm angry. Well, it's good. I don't remember having asked you that question, but thank you for answering it anyway. <laughs> We're talking about masks and uh, asking if you're ready to order more. Are you finding yourself looking through your supply, realizing that you might not have enough to get you through the COVID resurgence? We're going to continue the conversation on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Marjorie is, I don't know why I laugh. It's great she's doing it. Marjorie is, I mean, not laugh. Let me say it again. I am Jim Browdy. Marjorie is on jury duty. Sue O'Connell from NECN, NBC10, etc. is uh, sitting in. We're talking about masks, or if you prefer to talk about how Disney is hell on earth, you can do that too. No, actually we're not. Asking if you're ready to order more. You're finding yourself going, looking through your supply, realizing it might not get you through the COVID resurgence. Are you accepting of the fact that masks are with us for uh, the foreseeable future and then some. Our number is 877-301-8986. Uh, Let's go to Scott in South Boston. Scott, thanks for calling. Hello, Scott. Welcome. Hey, gang. Uh, really good to talk with you guys. Thank um, you. I personally have had to reorder another you know, 500 or so masks because we went through our 500 already. And it really, it, it kind of just treads on, uh, when, when this whole thing gets taken into a per- personal liberty, uh, you know, someone's taking my rights, I, I, you know, what that lady in Florida said about, you know, I don't wear a mask the same way, reason I don't wear underwear is because it's got to breathe. <laughs> I just, it totally blows my mind because I'm having to cancel plans to see my family out in California. I'm missing my best friend's wedding. All these things that we were supposed to have overcome, we can't just make a collective push as a society to really, you know, make a, a choice that's good for the, the country, like the economy. My, my, my son can't be vaccinated. He can't wear a mask. He's five months old. So have a little, you know, self-sacrifice, do the right thing, and just buy the mask and wear them. Like, and just, while you're at it, totally get vaccinated. Yeah. Me. Get you know, vaccinated, Scott, I, I'm... I'm so glad to use the. I know you're not the first one. This personal freedom thing. I, of all the things I am sick of, I am so sick of people either being so dumb that they shouldn't be allowed out in public, or so phony to be suggesting that it's all about your personal freedom and not about the health and freedom of the person you're disrespecting next to you. It's just it's un. Believable to me, but I guess that's the easiest thing to remember, and the Republican governors keep spouting that, so I guess they just re- repeat it. Are you nervous about taking your five-month-old places that you ordinarily would take him or her? I can't take him anywhere. I can't even take him. I can't take him grocery shopping, and that puts another logistical hurdle mm-hmm. on me and my sure. wife. Sure, it's like someone's got to do that chore, and I have to leave. It's basically, you know, if if we go anywhere, we have to be outside. We can't take him to our favorite, you know, lunch spots. Mm-hmm. We can't we can't do anything with him that would put him at risk because if he gets COVID or we get COVID, then we're out of commission for two weeks. We can't go to right. daycare. We can't do yeah. anything. So it would totally just torpedo our lives. And it's a dangerous, virulent disease on top of that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how, how much people can stand on that and grandstand me about their personal freedom when they're literally taking away mine. Amen. You great said call. it beautifully, great, Scott. Thank you. Call, Scott. Good luck with your kid, and thanks very Good much. Luck. You know, Jim, it's, it's uh, this personal freedom business, and it's, I, I joked a little bit with EJ about it. You know, you have to go to jury duty when you're called, right? <laughs> There's no personal freedom when it comes to jury duty. You don't get to say, I don't it's want to go, really right? Good point. You, if we draft people to join the Army, if we go to war— there's no personal freedom. You, I mean, there are ways that you cannot serve, right? But we, we live in a nation where we require people to do things for the better good on a regular basis. And all we're asking <laughs> is that you wear a lousy piece of paper over your face 
or and or get vaccinated uh, with a safe vaccine. And I and I the other thing that makes me my head explode is when I see people with an American flag on their car. Right. Or a flag that they're waving somewhere and then not wearing a mask. Like, how are you thinking about me when you're looking at your 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 stars and stripes? Where am I in the stars and stripes? Wrap that around your face. Speaking of stars and stripes and in light of the fact you took the conversation way off track with your Disney comment, can I make take it way off track for <laughs> yes, a second? Yes. Speaking of stars and stripes, have you seen the video of the cat that fell mm. from the upper deck of the football mm. game into yes. the flag the person was holding? That's going to be on an NECN, and I'm going to be talking about it in about five minutes, No, actually. is that true? <laughs> yes. Is that really true? <laughs> yes, it is. That cat, I mean, the talk about cliches that are true, right? <laughs> Having nine lives. I mean, that could have gone the wrong way, that cat. Caught in an American flag. That's a good use of an American flag. Google right it. There. Don't do it till 2 o'clock <laughs> right, or watch right. Sue on NECN, but it is an incredible image. Ellen and Akar, you're on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about the, ma- the fact that masks are probably here to stay at least for the time being, and how you're dealing with it. Welcome. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I just find um, it's just so incredibly strange, obviously hypocritical. Um, none of these anti-vaxxers would ever walk into a hospital and go into surgery and have a doctor say, hey, I feel great today. I'm not going to mask <laughs> up. I'm not going to wash my hands. I'm not going to wear gloves. And right. if that's your kid there, you would be furious. You'd, you'd drag the kid out of the operating room and say, no way. And it just, it, it doesn't make a sense that we went from we the people to me the people. Mm-hmm. And you're not getting it to protect yourself. You're getting it to protect others. You're getting it to be a, a decent person. That's it's, pretty it's much it, pretty to much be a it, decent yep person. That's, Ellen, thank you for the call. You know, I just realized, I don't know if you saw Drudge this morning. There's a poll on there by, admittedly, a company I've never heard of, so maybe it's not legit. Joe's but, poll. No, it's not <laughs> Joe's poll, but it's Acme. close to Joe's poll. <laughs> that one in seven people, does this sound real to you? One in seven people have dumped a friend. In fact, oh, that sounds real. three friends mm-hmm. over this vaccination issue. That sounds Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot of friends, but if I had some and they were unvaccinated or not masking, um, I, I would not be hanging with them. You know, we did a lot of uh, uh, call-ins during the early Trump years about, uh, about, Marjorie and I did, about people not only losing friends, but not talking to family mm-hmm. members. Uh, uh, I remember a regular caller her engagement to mm-hmm. her husband-to-be yep. yep. ended over this thing. I have to say, I think this vaccination thing, if anything, is even more intense. You know, I'm not saying that the Trump issue was not a big and divisive issue. This is so fundamental. I mean, it's life and death. Literally, of course, some would say Trump's life and death, too. Yeah. I can understand. I, I don't think if I had a close friend who was unvaccinated or refused to wear a mask in places where a mask was either mandated or appropriate, even if not mandated. Mm-hmm. I don't, th- I, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm intolerant in general, I know, but on this, I am I intolerant on steroids. I agree. And you know, it's also, remember when we worked in offices and somebody would get a cold and then everyone would get mm-hmm. the cold and then they'd stand around saying, how do we get this cold? Jim's the one that came in and he was sick and he gave it to me. It's like, we've totally forgotten how viruses spread. Right? Like, that's, that's it. Okay, let's take uh, go to New Hampshire, where Gordon is on Boston Public Radio with Sue O'Connell and me, Jim Bradley. Gordon, thank you much for the call. Hi. Hi, how you doing? Well, Great. good. Thank you for calling. 
Nice. This is my first time on the radio. Welcome. Well, thank you. Don't blow it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Good. So my question is maybe a little bit of a learning curve here. I like to hear um, from both sides of the story. But what I hear quite often is, so if somebody, you know, obviously, in my opinion, if somebody wants to wear a mask and get vaccinated, that's their prerogative. You know, they're, by all means, it'll, you know, help you feel better, you know, and in their mind, make them safer. So, but if they believe that the mask works and the vaccine works, why would, or I guess I'm curious as to what their thoughts are going to be as to why the next person should have that done if they feel they're protected. Well, I think I think the science on it um, is is that you can still uh, be contagious even if you are asymptomatic with a breakthrough conf- uh, uh, infection and um, uh, have COVID. So therefore, I'm vaccinated, uh, and if I get a breakthrough infection, I can spread it to someone else who isn't infected. So it's part of making sure that you also don't catch it from someone else and spread it to someone who isn't vaccinated and could get very sick and perhaps die, but also so you don't spread it to someone who is unvaccinated. You know, and, you know, it's a true point. Yes, obviously, we can do whatever we want when it comes to ourselves, but we live in a society where we're required to do things all the time, like get a driver's license, right? We don't just let people drive cars. Uh, it's, it's, it's the safety of others and ourselves that we require licensing for certain things and why we have stop signs and why we have, uh, you know, walk signals and make laws about walking in the street and when you can do it and when you need to stop. So I think the science is, is there. And again, and Jim, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the breakthrough numbers are very low. Um, you know, we're concerned about the Delta variant, but at the people who are the sickest and dying are the ones who are in have been unvaccinated, and one might imagine also not wearing masks on a regular basis. No, they're not only quite low, but the, uh, with the exception of your 80-some-year-old friend, uh, almost without exception, breakthrough right. infections don't lead to hospitalization and death. And when people say to me, you know, why do you bother to get vaccinated? You can still get infected. And, and I, my response is always because I like living. I mean, <laughs> if I get it, I get it. But I, at least hopefully I'll survive it. Gordon, uh, you're pretty honest uh, in your question. Does, does what Sue says satisfy you or do you want to hear more? Um, I guess to some degree I'm still confused. Well, I'm, I guess I was coming from the mindset, you know, with this question that, as far as like if someone wants to get vaccinated, it's pretty available. And mm-hmm. yeah, but when they don't, Gordon, the issue, if I may, Gordon, the issue gets back to the prior caller disparaging the personal freedom notion. Uh, uh, what hap- What you do to your own body or don't do has an impact on me and my ability to become infected. So uh, I, while it, of course, legally is a choice, I guess, in terms of one's societal responsibilities, at least Sue and I believe, and I think we're borne out by the science, it's a, about a responsibility not just to yourself, but to the people you care about or should care about about you. Gordon, thank you for your first call, call. and I hope you make another one soon. Thanks, Gordon. We, we appreciate it. 877-301-8970. You know, I'm glad Gordon called because I, I don't you never can tell, but you think he can tell in somebody's voice when they're sincere. I think he had sincere, sincere doubts mm-hmm. 
about some of the issues here, which I think is totally appropriate. I think it's great he decided to call a radio show to try to get an answer, even if he isn't totally convinced. The people that I cannot take, if I, the article you were nodding in agreement, you obviously read to that New York Times story about the fraudulent, Mm -hmm. disingenuous, sadistic behavior, homicidal behavior of some of these governors Mm -hmm. who are mandating vaccines left and right, as long as it's not a COVID-19 vaccine and by the way they rushed to get vaccinated themselves first in line is enough to put you right over the damn edge and to gordon's point too it's complicated right we don't have medical degrees all of us and it evolves so it's good to just keep asking questions and look to credible news sources for help thanks to everyone who called hey coming up we're going to preview tomorrow's mayoral preliminary um election with bay state banners yahoo miller he's next on 89.7 gbh boston public radio Boston Public Radio, the Supreme Court has ended the eviction moratorium, putting hundreds of thousands of renters at risk of losing their homes. Housing expert Bruce Marks, CEO of NACA, discusses what this means for Massachusetts residents. And as we approach Yom Kippur, how can the Day of Atonement help us navigate divisiveness? From cancel culture to growing tensions around vaccine resistance, Irene Monroe and Emmett Price will join us to discuss this and more. And then we'll ask you whether you're in a forgiving kind of mood for atoners or if vengeance is all. That's all ahead on 89.7 GBH. Jury duty today. We will learn, I assume, later today if she's going to make it back tomorrow. Sue O'Connell from NECN, from NBC10, from Bay Windows and the South End News. And from is, Jenny on the Block. Uh, <laughs> it's like a J-Lo moment. <laughs> in for her today. How are you, Sue O'Connell? I'm great, Jim. Thanks. Thanks so much for being here. So no matter who wins Boston's mayoral race, it will be historic. We're the first person of color. Elected to run the city by tomorrow night, we'll obviously have a better idea about who will be making that history as tomorrow's preliminary election will narrow the field of five major candidates down to the two final ones. Joining us online for a preliminary primer is Yahoo Miller, Yahoo's senior editor of the Bay State Banner. Yahoo, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for having me, Jim. I also secretly email Yahoo sometimes when I can't remember Ooh. something, and he's so good at helping me stay on point. Does he respond? Point. He does, and he doesn't Accurately? say. Accurately? Uh, yes, absolutely, and he doesn't say, how can you not know this? So, yeah, what's the status of the race? I was out last week talking to, to real people, civilians, and found so many undecided people coming up with candidates that weren't alike, like, well, it's either between this candidate or that candidate. What's your sense? Um, you know, I've learned from looking at past election cycles 
not to predict the city's <laughs> changing so much that and and there are so many variables there's an increased number of young people voting um you know that we a lot of the polls that have come out in recent weeks have relied on um uh, uh likely voters and when you know the capuano versus presley campaign likely voters put capuano ahead 13 percent um, we've got a you know a series of elections in the last few years that have brought out the unlikely voters, and you know which way they'll go. It's anybody's guess. Um, I'm I, I mean I I have put a hundred dollar wager, but I'm not going to share um, what the, what that is. So by the way, I'm I feeling want you very know, uncomfortable. That when Yahoo mentions the Presley Capuano race in my keeping my tradition alive of incredible predictions. As I've said to Congresswoman Presley on the day of the election, I predicted Capuano by a healthy margin. So I was only <laughs> off by about 30 points. You know, Yahoo, one of the incredible things is while people have said, I mean, with all due respect to uh, candidate uh, Barros, uh, the four women candidates are pretty significantly ahead of where he is in in polls. And obviously he's still a serious candidate, a man of serious accomplishment. However, it looks like a woman of color is going to be the uh, mayor of Boston here. But in in what could be an incredible turn of events, uh, we and actually much of the nation, I think front page of the New York Times, celebrated not just the first woman, the first black woman to be mayor, interim mayor, acting mayor of Boston several months ago. It is not inconceivable if these polls are to be believed and there's a relative dead heat for second place as the moment between uh, uh, Campbell, uh, Janie, and Asabi George, uh, uh, that uh, no black woman would make the final. What do you make of that? And what do you think the impact of that kind of outcome would be? Um, I think, you know, a lot of us looked at the uh, census, the, the 2020 census, and saw the number of blacks drop in Boston mm-hmm. by about, you know, 9,000 people, um, which doesn't sound like a lot of people. But at the same time, the, the black population in Boston has been increasing um, almost, you know, si- you know, since the 1630s, um, you know, with, with a few exception, you know, a few periods where that didn't happen, but it's been sort of this long increase in population. So to see that happen now at a time when, you know, immigration, you know, has been increasing the numbers of uh, Latinos and Asians, um, you know, I, I think, you know, it's a lot of people are, are you know, in the black community are concerned that, you know, we might actually be missing our shot to finally get the political power that's, you know, we've been building in this city for decades. So, um, you know, what, what, I mean, again, though, it's anybody's guess what's going to happen after this primary and so preliminary. So, yeah. But, you know, I'm going to, I want to ask you about a, a movement that's taken a lot of heat and I'm going to say something. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm where I'm about to say, but I think I am, uh, is when uh, Joe Kennedy retired. Well, he didn't retire. Well, he did retire. He ran for the United States Senate, obviously lost to Markey. In the race, there was a lot of talk near the end that the eventual winner, Jake Auchincloss, who got in the low 20 percent range, uh, there was not a runoff, uh, was the most moderate in the race, and that the, I think it was seven other candidates, whatever, were the most progressive. And there was a lot of talk, well, they should have unified around one or two candidates, maybe Jesse Murmel. I didn't hear many people criticizing that. 
But when some leaders in the black community said we should unify behind one, uh, led by former Senator Diane Wilkerson, we should unify behind one black candidate so the vote isn't split to the point where nobody makes the final or nobody of who's black is elected mayor. Everybody was up in arms. Why isn't that? Or why, in retrospect, in light of the fact that that could, and again, as you say, we don't know, that could be the outcome tomorrow. Why wasn't that a good strategy? They can't force anybody out of the race. They could just urge people who want a black mayor to say, this is our choice. Right. Um, I mean, Andrea Campbell did get into the race in September of last year, Mm -hmm. whereas Kim Janey got in in April of this year. So, um, I mean, at that time, you know, Janey was way ahead in the polls and it seemed like it might have made sense if you wanted to consolidate, you know, that that Campbell should get out. But how do you tell somebody who has been raising Mm -hmm. money and has been in the race for months and got in before Walsh? you know, uh, announced he was, you know, that he was leaving. Um, how do you tell her, you know, you know, it's not your turn. Um, the other, I mean, I think another, another piece is that the black community is always been in Boston has always been very heterogeneous with a large Caribbean population, sure. um, a population of the South and people who, you know, who were sort of came from like my family came, you know, one branch came from Canada, one branch came from Jamaica. So, um, you know, there's not a unified, there's never really been like, you know, a unified black community that where everybody is on the same page. So, um, you know, I, I, it's, uh, it's just, I think it was just like herding cats trying to get people to agree on mm-hmm. anything. Yeah, I'm talking to a lot of voters in my neighborhood in Roxbury, um, uh, African American and black voters who were voting for woo. You know, and then thinking, well, if we think Wu's going to get through, maybe we vote for Andrea Campbell and this strategic, you know, and these aren't like crazy super voters. These are just citizens who are definitely going to vote. So, um, you know, to underscore, you know, Miller's point there. You know, speaking of that, you know, which I I, I expected to get to later, but it just occurred to me, do either of you who know Boston politics better than I do either of you, starting with you, yeah, would you worry about turnout tomorrow? I mean, this is a mayor's race, obviously a big deal, but the turnout in some recent city council elections has been so pitiful. I wake up the next morning and say none of them should be elected. I mean, it is just, <laughs> is that a fear tomorrow or is this a different kind of animal? A little bit. I mean, I, I think it should be somewhere around 30%. Which um, you know uh, is higher than than a non-mayoral preliminary. Yeah. This that's my guess, right? Um, but thirty percent is piss poor. Like we really should have um, you know more Bostonians making an important decision as to who the who the who the final two people were, you know we're all going to decide on will be. Um, a lot of people have suggested that the city should go back to um, having mayoral races and city council races in the same year as state races. Um, you know, I think that, that we haven't done that in the last hundred years, but it might make sense. I mean, we're really losing voters interest with the, you know, municipal elections, particularly the preliminaries, um, you know, where, where so much, so many important decisions are made. And there's good, but, the you know, good when news. You, can I interrupt, yeah. When you say that, and I, and by the way, I'm nodding saying maybe, yeah, it probably should be moved back to the cycle where the other races are. But then I say to myself, we have had a white guy as mayor of Boston for what, a mere 200 years or whatever it is. We're about to make not only history that's going to be felt within our borders, but across this 
country with as good a field of candidates, I I think Mm -hmm. all three of us would agree, as I've practically ever seen in a major race with this many candidates, the fact that that we may get to whatever, 30, 35% is pitiful. I mean, it really is pitiful. So where does that, where does the blame, for lack of a better expression, Yahoo, fall if that's what the result is, even as you say, it's a hell of a lot better than in the city council race turnouts. I think part of it is in, is that Boston is a city of transients that we have, you know, somewhere around yeah. 70, 80,000 students who come in every year, every year. And, you know, they're probably more uh, invested in voting where they came from. But also, you know, we have a huge tech sector and, and a lot of financial jobs. We have this seaport district that's full of people we've gained about 60,000 people, I believe, in the last 10 years. And, um, you know, people who aren't from here tend not to vote. Like if you look at the turnout in the Seaport District, which is uh, South Boston, Ward 6, Precinct Mm -hmm. 1, um, you know, you get single digits. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Wealthy people, um, they're not from here. And they look at our, our, you know, they're probably not paying attention to our local politics. They'll turn out for a presidential, but not for a local race. And I think we've become in, like increasingly transient as a city, like the, our population has become increasingly transient. The one thing that does make me feel good about um, feeling optimistic about turnout is the at-large race. You know, uh, there are a number of candidates running, representing a number of constituencies, um, Haitian Americans, Dominican Republic. I mean, it's just a great variety of candidates which I'm hoping, uh, you know, they're looking to fill the two seats that um, um, Wu and Campbell will be leaving as our at-large counselors. Uh, and I'm hoping that those candidates drive new people to the polls uh, and in a way that we haven't before. I mean, am I crazy for being, uh, you know, optimistic about that, Yao? No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the, the best possible scenario to drive turnout where you have um, five well-funded mayoral races. Um, I can't even remember how many people are running for at-large city right, council. Right, I can't either. I was hoping you yeah. knew. A number she was going to email you right <laughs> after the show, y'all, yeah, and ask you. I've emailed him many times about the at-large race. So. <laughs> um, there, there are four or five um, at-large races, I mean, at-large candidates who've raised more than $100,000, mm-hmm. which is, you know, huge. They, they've got... Yeah, I mean, you open your door. I mean, last couple of days, you yeah. open your door and the mailers, like your door won't even open because there's so <laughs> many people who've stuffed mailers through your mail slot. Um, and then there are, I think, five uh, contested uh, city council uh, district races. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so so um, there is a lot of energy. There's a lot of money being spent. There are, um, you know, a lot of these campaigns are going door to door. And, and um, you know, I'm, I, I've... You know, it, it's funny because um, I just found out the other day that my doorbell hasn't been working for the last few months because the battery died in it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, everybody's been I mean, everybody but me has been has been had multiple like contacts from campaigns. Yeah, I've been stalked gonna... by a couple of candidates. I know where I live. They found out where I live and they have come and stood outside of my house. Yeah, so it's a perfect storm. But yeah, will people actually, you know, to what extent will people actually turn out? And I'm hoping it's it's well above 30 percent. I'm hoping. Are you surprised that Ayanna Presley sat this out? 
I mean, it, other than Mayor, well, maybe not other than Marty Walsh, who I don't think is allowed to endorse, is not endorsing, even though Sabi George went out of her way to say that she was taking Walsh's mother to the polls. <laughs> who wouldn't, right? I, I would too. <laughs> I would have carried a, her. <laughs> I, I, would, <laughs> I would too. Are you surprised that Presley, with the incredible power she has, sat this one out in terms, I don't mean in terms of voting, but in terms of endorsing Yahoo Miller? Um, no, you did see, I mean, a number of candidates have supported her in, in, in different ways. Uh, Anissa Sabi George was with her at, when she announced, um, her campaign for Congress. So, Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, you know, I, I think that she has, I mean, she, she, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see her get into the final. Um, but I think it, for the preliminary, it's just uh, too many, um, too many conflicting loyalties. Yao Miller from uh, Bay State Banner. Um, we're chatting with him about the mayoral race. Yeah, what are the, there's a number of constituencies that have not been um, spoken to, I think, in this mayoral race. And you'll like co- correct me if you're wrong. Um, Mar- uh, Marcella Garcia wrote in the Boston Globe that the Republicans, uh, any moderate Republicans, are basically. Um, not really being addressed directly. You could make an argument that some candidates are, are speaking in code, but directly. I haven't really seen a lot of outreach to the Hispanic, Latino community. Obviously not a monolith, you know, important to, 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 to say that before we move but forward. But really fast growing. Yeah, Boston, and, and yeah. you know, a huge, a huge movers and shakers nationally as well as locally. Um, are, is that, are those votes being left on the table? I did see, um, I mean, I, I attended a couple of events, one where uh, a group of Latino activists came out to support Michelle Wu, mm-hmm. another where they came out to support Kim Janey. Um, and, uh, you know, my partner is, has a Spanish surname. So, you know, she gets she gets a different set of mailings than I get. So I do think people are, are targeting um, the Latino community. Um, it just, yeah, just it, it's. I, I don't think that they've been completely ignored and their numbers are, are, are coming up. I think, right. you know, the estimate is 50,000 Latino voters uh, in Boston, but it still trails behind African-Americans and it trails behind, um, you know, white voters. And, you know, a, the Asian vote as well is, is, is um, you know, uh, a, a much smaller number than the Latino vote. So, um, I don't see I don't I don't see them being completely ignored, um, but you know, it, it, but I do and I do see the, the, them engaging in campaigns. Um, the Chinese Progressive Association uh, has endorsed Kim Janey. About seventy more than seventy three percent of of Asian American voters um, are supporting Michelle Wu. So they're engaged. The communities are engaged. Um, when you say that percentage supporting Wu, what's driving the race? I mean, it, uh, obviously one hopes, I guess, that issues are what drive every race. And most of the polls, we have Bruce Marks from uh, uh, NACA coming on right after you, Yahoo, obviously a leader on affordable housing uh, issues, that affordable housing is at the top of the list. But it, a lot of this race seems to be identity politics. I don't mean in a, in a pejorative way, identity politics, personal preferences, that sort of thing. What's your read? Not so much from polls, but from your travels and your anecdotal <laughs> contact. I, traditionally in Boston, ethnicity has driven races yeah. that, you know, um, and I mean, that's, that's a longstanding um, thing that didn't begin with Asian Americans and it didn't begin with black 
Americans. Um, and 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 that you know your, the neighborhood that a candidate from, came from was second to that, and issues were you know perhaps a distant third. I do think that in this race, issues play a more prominent role than um, any other mayoral race that I've seen. Really? And I say that with a little asterisk next to it. That that um, as an adult, I've wa- I watched uh, you know the Menino one, and then twenty years later, the 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 Walsh versus Connolly. So. This is only my third race as an adult, um, uh, uh, you know, but, you know, 28 years of, of, of this. Um, so I do think issues are playing a much bigger role. Um, I mean, that's it. I, I do have to go back to the polls that, that showed that, you know, majority of black voters are between um, Campbell and, and Janie. Um, you know, majority of Asian voters are with Wu. Um, Latino voters seem like they're split. Uh, multiple ways. Um, and, you know, when I did talk to Jose Maso, who's like a prominent Puerto Rican activist, uh, he said environmental concerns were top of his list and that Michelle Wu, um, you know, uh, ticked off the right uh, boxes on that. So I do think people are more than more than ever paying a t- a attention to issues. Yeah, I was going to ask, what, what what do you think the driving, obviously climate is, is right up there. Um, there seem to be so many number one issues. Do you think there's <laughs> there's one that's that's driving, or, you know, I I, I really press the undecided voters. I, I met asking them what the issue is or when they're going to make up their mind, and every single one of them said they weren't going to make up their mind until they went into the booth on Tuesday. How can it not be <laughs> right? affordability of housing in Boston? No matter some people said crime, um, really? you know, and then they talked about a candidate who didn't have a strong crime policy, you mm. know, but that was the candidate that they, they were considering. Um, it, I mean, it's, what, what are you hearing? Uh, I'm going back to the polls um, to yeah. say that, how, yeah, housing's the number one. And I mean, that was the same uh, um, when Tito Jackson was running mm-hmm. against uh, uh, the incumbent Walsh. Um, it's been a longstanding issue. I think it, it um, just because the rents are so high and that, you know, part of the reason the black community in Boston is shrinking is because people are buying, there are more black people buying homes in Brockton than in any other city in Massachusetts. So there is an ex migration of, of black people, uh, the black middle class uh, leaving the city. So housing is top education is, is, you know, people are ranking that as number two Um, and crime, you know, is an issue. Crime has been on a decline for the last few years, um, really for decades. But I mean, you know, the last five years, we've seen lower rates than, you know, than, than, you know, it's been, you know, decline in this year, you know, shootings, homicides, like all major categories of crime are down. It's still an important issue for many communities and for many voters. Um, But I don't know that you can win on that the same way that it, it won't play the same role in New York. I mean, here that it did in New York, I don't think. By the way, I um, should have said earlier, all five of the major candidates will be calling in tomorrow, which has been our our history here. We ask people, the major candidates on Election Day, to give us their final pitch, not for long interviews, but for a brief moments. So you get to hear from all five one final time as after the in-person voting has started. Okay, Yahoo, this is the moment of truth. If <laughs> Sue and I each offer you $50 free, will you tell us who you bet $100 on? <laughs> Come on. Very good. That's a Philly boy talking to us. You can tell. 
You can tell that's a not. Philly deal right if, there. If she if she makes it past the preliminary, she won't talk to me again. So no. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Good, good point. Yeah, well, we really appreciate your insight. There's as a always. she in there. I heard that. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Good luck tomorrow. Thank you. I'll be emailing you tonight. Yeah, well, don't worry. You've seen the editor of the Bay State Banner. Uh, coming up, we're going to take a look at the end of the CDC eviction moratorium and what that means for Massachusetts. Housing advocate and expert Bruce Marks is going to join us for that conversation next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Sue O'Connell sitting in for Marjorie, who's on jury duty. I'm Jim Browdy. Last year, the CDC imposed the nationwide eviction moratorium. And after going through several extensions, the Supreme Court has ended it, putting hundreds of thousands of people at risk of being put out of their homes. The pandemic has underscored how susceptible the housing market is to abrupt economic downturns and how easy it is to become homeless. Bruce Marks pays close attention to this. As the CEO and founder of the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America, that's the largest housing and urban development certified nonprofit, Bruce knows how to help renters and mortgage holders alike. He's going to explain that to us now. Bruce, great to talk to you as always. Jim, it is, it is great to be on. Sue, nice, nice to speak to you. And how is it that Marjorie's still in jury duty out there? I mean, she just started this they... morning. I mean, give her a break. I mean, don't they know that she's going to be any, everybody's innocent? I mean, we've heard Marjorie over, over the years, you know? So, uh, you know. So you get to I go home and you get to go home. One honest man. In the... By the way, we call I him not guilty, not innocent, Bruce. That's what the term of art is, just so you know. So, okay, sorry. Bruce, I so. took a look at the, you know, what you need to do in order to um, get some of this money that is due folks, both uh, tenants and landlords. And, you know, I, I, I'm, again, astonished at how difficult we make things. Um, it, it reminded me of, you know, applying for the aid for small businesses, which I got about halfway through and said, forget it. I, I don't have I can't gather all these documents. What's the status of of this relief and why isn't it in the hands of the people who need it the most? You, 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 you would know. So it's crazy because there's over 700 providers. So there's 47 billion dollars of emergency rental assistance that's out there. That's a huge amount of money. And so little of it has gotten out because no tenant and no landlord can figure that piece out. So and, you know, it goes back even to the mortgage crisis where, you know, you know, there were solutions out there, but, you know, it was not coordinated by the federal government. So we've been in touch with with the Department of Treasury. We've been in touch with the the, uh, Consumer Finance Protection Bureau and HUD, and it's not coordinated. Actually, they have five staff people at Treasury. And we said to them, 
you've got to get your stuff together. And their excuse was, well, it's a state-oriented thing. Well, said, well, the states don't know how to do this because they've never done it before. So why don't you set a standard? Why don't you provide a program where states could use it? And they haven't done it. So it is a mess out there. And you know, now you, now you have Congress that has said, okay, here's $100 million to fund housing counseling agencies to be able to provide the assistance for tenants and for, and for landlords. That was done in March. Only a few days ago were the, was the decision made of who got those monies. So these organizations won't even get up to speed until probably the beginning of next year. And in the process, people are losing their apartments. They're being evicted. And where do you go when one is evicted? You might go to a family or you on the street. So it is a mess. So what NACA is doing is that we, we are reaching out to over 3 million of our members. And we've hired economic justice advocates who, whose job it is to understand what's going on in each state, who the providers are in each state, and to help people navigate through that process. And so we have already received over 10,000 uh, applications, submissions from renters saying we need assistance, that we are, we are late on our rental payments and we need assistance. So we have our economic justice advocates working with them to get them through the process. So we're the conduit between the borrowers and landlords and the assistance with uh, the providers. And what's crazy out there is that all these providers, 700 of them, they have different standards. So they have different standards of what is required for documents, what it, who's eligible. So it's a lack of coordination from the federal government that's causing this crisis, just like during the mortgage crisis. You know, let's stay on renters for a few minutes and we'll talk about homeowners where you also have expertise, Bruce Marks, in a couple of seconds. Uh, number one, what are the criteria for eligibility for a renter who's at risk of eviction for non-payment reasons? Uh, uh, what is What threshold does he or she have to meet to be eligible for a piece of this $47 billion coming from the feds? So... So, Jim, the major criteria is that, and again, it's different in different states, but, you know, basically you have to have a median income less than 80% of the median income for that state. So it's for low and moderate income people that need, that need the assistance. Then it used to be that you would have to, have to provide the verification of uh, whether, you know, your lease and, um, you know, all the, all the documentation about your lease and, you know, that you are impacted by um, COVID-19, they've loosened that up. So they've loosened up their criteria that now you just have to do a self self uh, attestation that says, you know, I've been impacted by COVID-19. Uh, this is my rental situation. Mm-hmm. So they've loosened that up. So that's the good news out there. And the also good news is $47 billion that's out there that is available. So now it's about really coordinating and connecting the tenants and landlords to the different providers and not just to leave it at that, but to really stay on it. But you, but you know, Jim, uh, last time I was on, we had a discussion about landlords. And I said that every non-occupant landlord 
is out there just to maximize profits and that they're basically have no moral compass. Now, I gave my personal cell phone number out there. And you know what? I got some calls from landlords. And, you know, so I want to re revise my statement a little bit because some called from New Hampshire, some called from Massachusetts. So you have a big reach out there. So, you know, there are some decent uh, non-occupant landlords out there. Now I'm going to stick, keep saying, and we know the reality, the vast majority just want to maximize their profits, but there are a few good ones. So I want to modify that. And Stunning. I appreciated the opportunity to meet to, with those landlords. Babe, can we, one last thing on this renters thing. So if you, if you either meet criteria or if you're un, if you're nervous, which is totally understandable, you're a renter and you're not sure if you meet these criteria, if you contact NACA, they yes. will get assistance from your experts. So that's the most important takeaway here. How do they do that? What's the way to make contact and get a sit down with somebody who's got expertise, Bruce Morris? So what they have to do is they have to go to our website, and which is NACA.com. So go dot to what? NACA, uh, NACA.com. Go to our website and you'll see uh, at the top um, for tenants, for renters. And then the, you'll be able to complete a good amount of information. You know, what your personal circumstances are, whether you're late, who your landlord is, you know, some, some comprehensive information. And then we will contact you. We will contact the tenant um, and we will work with uh, the tenant to get them through the process because our staff are experts in whatever state um, they're calling from to get them the assistance. Great. We're talking to Bruce Marks from uh, uh, NACA. You know, Bruce, uh, a, a couple of, uh, maybe a month ago, we were talk talking to Michelle Singletary, a financial columnist for the Washington Post, who's a regular on our show every month. And she had written a piece about foreclosures and the burden on the Consumer Financial Board to put pressure on banks uh, not to uh, nail these people who were obviously behind in mortgage payments. Uh, you're cited uh, pretty regularly throughout that piece. W what kind of relief or protection is provided for homeowners, not renters, but homeowners who are suffering through this last 18 months as well? Right, because I, because I had a great conversation with Michelle. She's and fabulous. So she is. And she's known Knack, and I've known her for many, many years. So she's been out front on, on um, this issue and many others. So, you know... It's the good news is, is that, you know, people can do uh, an agreement uh, and that, you know, forbearance agreement where they don't have to make their mortgage payments for really up to 18 months. And then once they're able to make the mortgage payments, the, the missed payments go on to the back end of the mortgage. So if you have a 30 year mortgage, then it might be instead of instead of 360 months, it might be, you know, you know, three. 370 months uh -huh. for those 10 months that you haven't paid. So that's a really good, good solution. So if you compare that, Jim, to what's going on with the rental crisis, uh, you know, that's a good solution because it's recognition that, you know, homeowners cannot pay the past arrearage that they were unable to pay due to the pandemic. But for renters, you know, now when they start making their rental payments, they're going to owe six, 10, 
$15,000 in arrearage. So by definition, they're going to lose their apartment. They're going to be evicted. So that same type of solution should be there on the renters. But, you know, what we did during the mortgage crisis, and certainly Michelle, she was there, she saw it, was that we were, again, the conduit between the homeowner back then and the lender or servicers or investor to get the solution. So we're taking that same model we did during the mortgage crisis where we were able to save over 250,000 homeowners from foreclosure. We want, we're looking to do the same thing in terms of the tenants in this, in this tenant crisis, which is, a, which is a tsunami that's coming down. Yeah, Bruce, I want to talk. There was an article in The Atlantic about um, the title of it was The Coming Wave of Evictions is More Than a Housing Crisis by uh, Joe Pinsker. And I think when people hear about evictions, they just think that someone loses their apartment or loses their house, goes stays with a friend, and then nothing else in their life gets disrupted. <laughs> or there's disruption that they can recover from quickly if they have a job and can find a place to live. Can you talk a little bit about what, what the wave of impact is when someone has been evicted? So when you look at, so I would almost, I would argue that this is even worse than the mortgage crisis because the numbers are going to be far greater in terms of evictions than during the mortgage crisis. And the the consequences are during the mortgage crisis, well, you could fall back on being a tenant. Now, when you're evicted as a tenant, you don't have the fallback to get another place to rent because you have an eviction uh, on your credit report. And the fact of the matter is your options are, yes, you might be able to fall back on your family, which is extraordinarily difficult, but maybe just for a short period of time. And then it's onto the street. So this is really a tsunami. It's a disaster. And, you know, one of the things that came out just the you know other day is that Fannie Mae says we're going to look at people's rental history in terms of redetermining whether they're ready for home ownership. So that was a good thing, except now it's a bit too late when so many people are going to be have an eviction on their credit report. So they not only will be on the street, but they won't have the opportunity to be a homeowner. So this is something that we really need to get a handle on, and we're way behind the curve on this, and it's going to be a disaster. Hey, Bruce, you said a minute ago for people who are renters who are – Nervous, to say the least, that they go to NACA.com and look for tenant and click on it and yep. answer some questions in yep. advance. If people don't have access to the Internet, is there a phone number that they can call? Sure, absolutely. And they need to call 425-602-6222. 425-602-6222. And we will follow up. I mean, we have hired over 40 economic justice advocates, and we're going to be hiring over 100 just to work with people directly to get them through the process. And I just want to reinforce, it's, it's working with somebody from day one until they get that assistance, not just to have them apply, but to make sure it gets done and to advocate for that piece and then to identify. And Jim and Sue, we are also identifying the landlords out there because you're going to put in the information about your landlord. So we want to identify the good landlords out there that are willing to accept um, the assistance and the bad landlords there 
that are looking to force people out of their apartments. You know, Bruce, the other uh, challenge here, too, which I uh, just to expand people's minds when they're thinking about this, is, is that if there are um, multifamily homes that are owned by good landlords, but who are yes. behind on their mortgages and their tenants are unable to pay and uh, it ends up that the the landlord, the, the, the owner, decides to sell the building in order to say, I no longer want to worry about getting the money from the tenants. I can't pay the mortgage. Maybe I'll short sell uh, like we went through uh, during the mortgage crisis. That really sets the stage for major developers uh, to come in and buy properties up uh, and therefore perhaps uh, – not to be too pessimistic, but make the housing crunch even worse um, by taking some of these three families and multifamilies out, replacing them with these apartments that we see, which have few affordable units and high rental prices, right? Absolutely. It's a really good point, Sue, because if you look at what happened in the mortgage crisis, a lot of, you know, particularly minority homeowners lost their homes. And who bought those homes? Well, they were bought by Wall Street firms. For example, uh, Invitation Homes bought 83,000 homes, single-family homes, and they're renting them out. They're not selling them. So that same thing is going to happen during this rental crisis where where the Wall Street firms, the big players out there, are going to be buying these apartments. And so it's going to be a greater concentration and they're going to jack up the rents. And, uh, you know, when they cry, they say, well, we have our own payments to make to the lenders. If you talk to the lenders, what the lenders will say to you is, yeah, we will modify those mortgages for these landlords, and we will give them a pass on that until they can make the payments. So they should be passing that same benefit they're getting from their landlords, from their lenders, back to their tenants as well. And before I forget, I hope we, we have some time to talk about the mayoral we are. Um, uh, piece. On that. We're going to do that in a second. I just want sure. one last thing on renters. We're talking to Bruce Marks from uh, NACA, where if you're a renter at risk of eviction and need assistance, uh, you can either go to NACA, N-A-C-A dot com, or if you don't have access, to, and click on tenant. And if you don't have access to the Internet, you can call them at 425 602 Six two two two. I don't know if you made this point a minute ago, but if you didn't, it bears mentioning. You've said a couple of times, Bruce, correctly. Obviously, every state has different rules around evictions and that sort of things. In this state, that while landlord can still, and I just confirmed this with one of our colleagues, and I want you to confirm it for me too, that while landlords can still file for eviction due to non-payment, no action can be taken once the tenant is filed for assistance and is working through that process. So that application alone, aided by NACA, if you need help from one of their experts, will stay any proceeding. That is correct, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Great. and 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 we worked for, you know, you know, we worked with Judge Dare, who was head of the housing court for many years. So, you know, you know, there you need to go and you need to file so that to prevent the evictions out there. And you know, what we is frustrating on is that it makes sense for landlords and for tenants to get this assistance because you can get all of your rearage paid off. So that makes sense for the landlord. You can get your past due utilities paid off and you can get even assistance going forward to pay your rent if it's not affordable. So the money is there. 
we just got to make the connection, mm -hmm. but not to blame the tenant and not to blame the landlord, because how would anybody navigate this process of knowing where to go for the assistance? That's what our job is, and as well as other counseling agencies out there. So, Bruce, since you instructed Sue and me a minute ago to t ask you about your mayoral forum <laughs> before the site, we just we just spoke to Yahoo Miller from the Bay State Banner, and I'm yes. sure people either listen to that or have seen virtually every poll in which the affordability of housing is either number one or very close to number one in terms of the most important issues facing the likely voters of Boston. You did a mayoral forum, uh, got a decent amount of press, uh, not too long ago. What are the major takeaways? What did you learn that you think would be of value to people who are vote, haven't voted yet, but intend to be voting uh, uh, tomorrow? So it was very informative. I mean, as you saw, Jim, we, we had over 700 people. There were mm. over 200 people who were on site and over 500 people that were um, on the on the webinar. That's great. And so we had all all the candidates here except for Acting Mayor Kim Janey, who is ironically she purchased a house through NACA with no down payment and no closing costs in 1999, and she's still in that house. And wait, wait, wait! Know, stop there! Wait, stop there for a second. The Globe story in this didn't mention that Mayor Acting Mayor Janey who didn't, couldn't make it, and her right. staff person, people said she had other things going on or whatever. Uh, um, she is owns her house through your organization? Absolutely, with no down payment and no closing costs. So she's been in there for over 20 years. And so she, you know, so she didn't come, you know, and uh, she says, well, she, she is too busy. Well, you know, because she's running, she's running the city government. Well, you never heard that from Mayor Walsh, from Mayor Menino, from Mayor Flynn. They never separated their job of being mayor from talking to their constituents. Well, I mean, in all fairness, Mayor Menino wouldn't even debate some of his right. opponents. So Ask I don't know Hennigan. if I'd include Menino in that, in that category. <laughs> but Yes, but, but he always went to the forums, but he was out there with the constituents. Okay, but let, let, okay. Wait, let's move beyond yeah. Janie. I wasn't, uh, that's yeah. interesting yeah, to yeah. know. Did, yeah. What did you learn uh, that you like to share in terms of the any of the candidates yeah. in this race that you think and, people should know and absolutely so you know we we had the forum and then i met one-on-one -on -one with each person you know except for mayor janey uh and you know so it's very interesting because the 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 re feedback was is that you know uh we we had a poll andrea campbell did very well john barrows did well um, uh, Michelle Wu, people liked her rental stabilization piece out there. And then we met with each one. And what we're announcing today is that NACA is endorsing Andrea Campbell. Oh, really? For so we're endorsing her. We've reached out to our 32,000 members that live in Boston. So this is news. We haven't put this out there before. We reach out to our 32,000 members and we, with robocalls, with text with emails with canvassing and you know you only need as you know about twenty five thousand votes to get into the runoff and we think that with our thirty two thousand members that live in boston and that we are endorsing andrea campbell that that's going to make a big difference in this mayoral race what well, was... she's lucky she showed up, let me tell you. <laughs> I know, right. We're talking to Bruce Marks from NACA. What was the tipping point, Mark? What, what, uh, Bruce, what, what did 
what's the compelling issue since many of them have housing as as a priority in their campaigns? Sure. And you know what? And I got to say, I really enjoyed I mean, our members really enjoyed meeting with the candidates. And I did, too. I mean, so I think it's a very strong group. So I think Boston should be very proud of the candidates that are that are running for mayor. What what separates her out is that we think she's a strong leader. We think obviously she has a compelling background in history, but she's very forceful. She's very outspoken, but she she has a, a natural leadership skills that we think are important because Boston is the old boys network, right? It's who you know, it's how you get things done. And you need a strong person to really undo that the the insider old boy network in Boston to really diversify jobs, to take on the issues, and to deal with affordable home ownership, not just with down payment assistance, but to say to the developers, at least they have to put at least 20% of the units that they are developing, making them affordable, and also to deal with you know rent stabilization and to, to protect the tenants out there. You know, one last thing, we only have a minute or two left. We're talking to Bruce Marks from uh, NACA. Is uh, one of the, the things I'm amazed has not been endorsed by more of the candidates here is what uh, in the debate the other night, uh, I think it was maybe it was the BUR debate, maybe it was uh, any NBC 10, I'm not sure, where, uh, or maybe both. Michelle Wu uh, said she supported rent stabilization, which I guess is a less scary term than rent control, even though it's totally a function of what the statutes say. It's not like a term of. Art, uh, Wu was the only uh, endorser. Barros thinks it's a really horrible idea. Janie seems to have come around that at least as an option, uh, if there was a home rule petition the state allowed a city or town to implement it, she'd be okay with that. Uh, in 60 seconds or left, where are you on rent control as or rent stabilization, whatever, some limits on rents as being part of a solution to the unaffordability of housing, Bruce Marks? Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely crucial, Jim, out there because, you know, people talk about home ownership, and we're a home ownership organization. But even in the best of circumstances, a small percentage of tenants are going to be able to, to be homeowners, you know, for a variety of reasons, sure. the supply and all that. So you have to protect uh, the renters out there. And, you know, landlords should get a reasonable return, but they've been jacking up the rents for years and years. So we have to have a, you know, a doable process and a manageable process to hold those rents down with a reasonable return. And, you know, obviously, Jim, you know what happened in Cambridge. And, you know, and I think it was reasonably effective when that was in place. And, you know, you would live in New York City. So did I. And that works in New York City. Yes, you can always find problems with it, but it's absolutely necessary because, You've got to protect the vast majority of tenants in the city of Boston because we need to keep a diverse uh, city that is both racially diverse and economically diverse. And the only way you can do that is to control these rents so that they can be reasonable increases, but they're affordable. Bruce Marks, we really appreciate talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Anytime, Jim and Sue. Thank you for having me. Good to talk to you. Folks can go to NACA.com, N-A-C-A.com, for information on how to apply. They'll get you right through the process, so make sure you visit it. And uh, you can also dial uh, 425-602-6222. 
Thank you to Bruce Marks. Coming up, it's time for All Revved Up with the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett G. Price III. So keep your dial on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie's on jury duty. Sue O'Connell sitting in. I just want to add a program note in addition to the virtual GBH event about the mayor's race you just heard about tonight at six. We will have all five candidates calling in for one last shot tomorrow during the show. And we just learned the governor will be joining us uh, this Thursday at noon. But first, joining us online to take on some of the moral dilemmas of the day. I think the first time since. Summer, I think. Our Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. Reverend Emmett G. Price III is the founding pastor of Community of Love Christian Fellowship and the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Reverend Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, Boston Voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. They are both the hosts of the All Revved Up podcast. Irene, Emmett, we've missed you. Welcome back. Hey, great to be back. Glad to be here. And, and a be- shout-out to Sue. <laughs> and, right hey, Sue. Hey. hey, and a shout-out to you, Emmett. Before we start, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. One, congratulations. And two, yeah. tell us about the new job. Well, I'm excited to uh, join my new colleagues at, uh, you know, one of the greatest institutions on the planet uh, for creative, you know, Im- improvisation, music, dance, theater. And uh, they're elevating the notion of the the black experience within the arts um, to to say that, you know, we need to do better. We need to do more, um, both in terms of, you know, recruitment and retention of students, faculty, but also our curriculum. And so I'm so excited to to sit in this seat and to uh, and to, you know, join these courageous folks doing the courageous thing in this important season. Congratulations. We're thrilled for you. Congratulations. But but he didn't tell but he didn't tell the rest here. You know, his son, Emmett the Fourth, who's a musical prodigy. It's all it's this is his first semester. at no. So, yeah, well, yeah, he, he and, got in before yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, right. And, that's and, great. And, you know, when we left, when we left him, it was, it was, was unemployed. But this just shows that a, a setback <laughs> is a setup for a comeback. So this is just great news. Oh, good news Beautifully all around. Beautifully put, Irene. We're really happy for you, Emmett. Yeah, congratulations. congratulations. All right, let's, let's talk about this article that's in uh, Boston Magazine by Dart Adams. Oh, the headline oh. is, ooh, is Boston, is Boston America's <laughs> most racist city Ask a black Bostonian for once. And I just I just want to share that back in, I think, 2010, um, we were hosting a number of uh, uh, gay publishers in Boston. And I was with a friend who was African-American. And one of the publishers said, where are all the black people? And my friend who was black <laughs> said, um, in the governor's mansion, in the U.S. Senate, 
uh, a, a Suffolk County sheriff, our state uh, state senator, and started listing all of the African American and Black folks who were serving. Deval Patrick, of course, um, uh, Linda Dorsina Forey, uh, just all of them. And then the person who asked, who was also African American, said, "No, no, but Boston's really racist." And I was struck. This <laughs> article is trying to say, I think, and you'll tell me. Uh, Dart Adams is saying there's a nuance here and a sort of outer towner, out of town burden that people put on uh, African Americans and Black folks in Boston. I mean, you made the heaviest side, yeah. I think. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ask you first. I'm done talking. As usual. But, you know, yeah, yeah. But 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 Sue, it's not fair. You're also from this area. You know, what's very very interesting about this here is that, and I'm sorry. You know, this is one moment I'm really missing, Margaret, Marjorie, because we're not looking at it intersectionally. One of the things that we don't understand about Boston really is that it weaponized race by using an immigrant white class because there was a moment at times when there used to be signs that said no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, and then it went no Italians, and then it went you know on and on and on. And so what has happened, and a classic example of how we see poor whites just you know, weaponized against poor blacks was the busing issue, a pox that, we, that Boston will never be able to erase. The problem with Boston is this, you know, it promotes itself to be the city on the hill. We remember it being the center of the abolitionist movement, but yet having slavery here. So I think what we got to look at is that when you use these individual people, I mean, an exception, this is the tokenized, tokenism that happens, and the exception doesn't negate the rule. I'll give you a good example here. You know, I'm in the People's Public of, 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 uh, of Cambridge, and a black kid at Boston, at, at uh, Cambridge Ridge in Latin, has no more chance of getting to Harvard, which is right across the street from the high school, than a child, black or white, coming out of the Mississippi Delta here. So one of the things is, is that, yes, it is nuanced. You know, what they see here is that we do have a, what we, I call a black professional class, not so much a middle class, huge middle class. But the point is, is that, listen, own it. Boston is very much racist. And even though we have the best race going tomorrow, even the fact that it's taken 200 years for that to happen is a clear indication. Emmett? Well, you know, I think Irene has hit on a number of important um, uh, considerations. I think that is actually what the author is suggesting, that this story is much more nuanced, that you just can't ask one question, is Boston racist? Absolutely, Boston is racist, but you got to go to the <laughs> next point and say, that. What, how does that play out? And, and what have Black people in Boston uh, been doing around that? And black people have been doing a whole lot and made, you know, significant, um, you know, progress in certain areas. And in certain areas, we have not, which is the systemic mm -hmm. notion of racism. So I think that this is a very complicated conversation to have. And we need to be able to have the conversation and not just one word answers. So uh, let yeah, me ask you know, both, uh, I, Irene, if I may, mm -hmm. the, the same question we asked, I asked Yahoo Miller before, uh, uh, two of the top four candidates are uh, black women uh, in the mayor's race. And there's at least a decent shot that neither of them might make it to the final. One might, both mm -hmm. might, but it's also, if you look at the odds, a decent shot. They could come in third and fourth. Irene, starting with you, yeah. what's the takeaway I, if I, that happens? Yeah, I think Georgia win. I'm sorry to say it. And the reason being is, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's an important question. One of the things is that we argued, why doesn't one run, right? 
so that we could solidify our base. But the point is, and I think I heard a caller, someone say, we are, we are as heterogeneous as any Nella other. Nella Miller you know, from the Bay State Banner just said, oh. yeah. Okay, as, as any other group, and that's true, but strategically, we don't have the numbers here. So what happens is, is that people will not, I, I'm hoping, this is what I'm hoping, I'm hoping that they will be able to make a distinction between Andre and Kim. That's number one. But number two is that I'm really hoping that what will happen here is that this will, if they don't win, this will be an interesting learning lesson for us all about, yes, we as, as black voters, if we want a black candidate that represents our interests, we have to think about this much more strategically. But also, we got to look at gentrification. Boston is becoming whiter and whiter because because the black black folks are being out pushed out into Randolph and other places because of housing. So tomorrow's race will be a good indication. But another indication is the Boston Spotlight team. I still can't get over the fact that our accumulated wealth is eight dollars. I keep thinking it's a decimal point error, but it's eight dollars. Black families in Boston, as opposed to 250 grand for white families. Emmett, what would your reaction be if uh, there was well, not I, a black candidate in the final? I would make a double analogy to really kind of double down on what Irene said. You know, in Boston, blackness in Boston is totally different than it is in Jackson, Mississippi, or in New Orleans, Louisiana. I mean, there is a huge, diverse population of black folks from all over the planet, you know, from the continent all the way through South and Central Latin America. And so what, what I'm trying to show is that not only is it an uh, ethnic um, intersectionality, but it's also religious, right? You have Black Catholics and you have Black, mm-hmm. you know, uh, folks who practice different things, which infuses and, and, and also inspires how they see politics and whether they see it at all. So when you think about who's coming out to the polls, all of those things play a, a similar role. The same thing with Asians. You know, there, there is not one you know, Asian, you know, um, uh, you know, monolith. There's a, a rich, vast and diverse, you know, uh, notions of how, you know, people who are codified as Asians think and believe and vote and practice and whatnot. So so I think Boston is a unique space that, again, desires and, and demands a more complicated and comprehensive conversation around just are yeah. all the black folks going to vote for this yeah. one black woman over this other one. We're speaking with Reverend Yeah, but Zyreen. the thing is this, though. But the thing is this. This is, this is the truth. So you come up here to get credential because the point is this. They make it a point for you not to stay. They, because per, per, and another thing, they don't really want you to come up here to these schools because a lot of us come up here because of these schools here. But they make it so that there's no social life for for Who's buddies, they, young profession. Th- th- meaning white culture here, the mm-hmm. dominance of white culture, whether it is queer. Come on, Sue, you yeah. need to say amen on this one, okay? <laughs> whether it is queer or or whether it is straight, it makes it makes no accommodation, let alone acceptance. Of, of people of color. So, th- so that's another reason why you have this migration in once you get your credential and you migrate out. Listen, had I not fallen in love with a girl up here, I would be in Brooklyn today. There you go. And I that, mean, that is the God and, and, and I think that's the point Darda Adams actually makes at the end of the article in Boston Magazine that un- he says, until Boston actively embraces highlights and showcases its non-white residents, you know, that's where we're going to be. Look at the other place we're going to be as we move forward on uh, mandated vaccinations for some federal, most federal employees and, and private businesses. Um, the director of the National Institutes of Health, uh, Dr. Francis Collins, is expressing some frustration and anxiety 
with evangelicals regarding whether or not there's a religious exemption that one can really make to get out of getting a vaccination. I mean, Emmett, is which Bible, where is it in the Bible about the vaccinations? I think I missed that part. It should be in Leviticus because that's the health code, right? Leviticus is the health code, right? So it should be there. Hey, Sue, Leviticus is where white evangelicals go. Right, evangelicals go to solve all the problems. Uh, right, right. right. All, so, all of them. So it should be there, right? <laughs> I think you know th- this is an interesting you know moment, and and I think it's you know as as much as we can make you know levity of it, it's a really sad moment. Um, and I think uh, the gentleman who who you referenced uh, made a made a great point that in that historically and somewhat culturally, uh, evangelicals have always been the ones who were supposed to operate from a sense of loving thy neighbor. Yeah. And and so even yeah. if they don't necessarily subscribe to uh, the vaccine. The death count is morbid. It's clear that we need to do something. So, so the only way to get to you know quote unquote herb uh, herd uh, immunity is to get to herd mentality, such that we can all think about what you know can we do to really protect these twelve and under people who are now getting. Yeah, but see the- uh, yeah, but 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 Emmett, this is how I feel about it because 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 I you know I, I could I could preach about why we should you know we should be vaccinated until I'm white in the face. No pun intended, Jim and, and Sue. But listen, but the point is this: the point is this here. The problem is it's how it's framed here. This is a public health issue, and this is where I say that when it gets messy and it, you have these confounding issues of, of how a religious group is going to respond, if you really do live up to the very tenet that there is a separation between church and state, then you can frame it in such a way that, that stands on a solid rock, and they understand that within Christology. Christology on a solid rock that this is a public health issue. Whether you love your neighbor or not, you don't have to evoke anything. We are talking about public health, and I think that we lost that. And that's why I feel like at this point that if you don't reframe it and put it like, look, this is what we have to do for the good of everybody, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, atheist or not, we will continue to have this issue. Because I think I, I was listening earlier, it just requires, even if you don't get vaccinated, because last year this time none of us were vaccinated, but our protection was this paper mask. So, I mean, there is a way in which we can stem this. And we have to understand this. There will always be a population of people that will not be vaccinated. So this is where, again, you know, mandating masks and those that we can get to be vaccinated, we have them be vaccinated. We're talking to Reverend Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. So as somebody who uh, forgives nobody for anything, I was particularly interested in reading a guest essay in the uh, New York Times, the title of which was, So You've Been Canceled, A Yom Kippur Atonement. God, Yom Kippur is later this week, for those who don't know, Day of Atonement, Jewish Faith. A friend of, I'll read you just a little bit from the first paragraph. It's by Rabbi David uh, Wolpe. Is how, uh, he's uh, from the Sinai Temple in L.A. A friend of mine was publicly canceled. He deserved it, and he knew it. And then jump a little bit. What I sometimes wonder, both my role as a rabbi myself and as a denizen of our broader culture of accountability, is how my friend or any one of us can find a path back from shame to acceptance. And it seems what he does uh, in this, Irene, is he lays out what Marjorie and I have discussed millions of times in the 20 years we've been on the air, 
what is a legitimate uh, apology and when should an apology for bad behavior be uh, uh, accepted? Could you flesh out a little bit yeah. more about what the okay. rabbi had to say and whether you buy into his thesis? <laughs> No, I don't buy into his thesis, and I have to say, I think it's bad theology. I really do here. I do make a distinction between cancel culture and counsel culture, because when you have counsel culture, there is that moment of atonement. There, there is that possibility. But listen, an apology means nothing because, again, that too is used as a way to either appease someone. There are different types of that's That's something, that's a way to even weaponize having the last word. So, and sometimes we just do it out of guilt here. But I think that if we, if we talk about atonement within the context of it being transactional, then we can talk about forgiveness. Because what happens is, is that we're then talking about individual forgiveness as well as institutional forgiveness. Because again, I remember the Southern Baptist in, 19, in 1998 making an apology for slavery. But yet, it talked about it in a very devotional way, but institutionally it changed nothing. That's why women and people of color and LGBT people are leaving in mass numbers from the church. I mean, listen, Clinton knew this. Bill Clinton knew this. If you want forgiveness, because you know black people give away forgiveness like it's confetti, all right, that what you do is, is just go to a black church, and then we sing Amazing <laughs> well, Grace. Now, you know, that's true. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that, because I was thinking of Barack Obama singing Amazing Grace at that church in Charleston. And one of the lines the rabbi wrote, it's also worth noting that anger at others, even when merited, can be personally destructive. I will never forget, and I'm sure none of the three of you will, was the, the mother mm -hmm. of someone who'd been killed in that church who literally the next day uh, was saying she forgave the shooter. Uh, and when it was flushed out a little bit more, it was around this notion. It's not just the, the goodness of the person who gave forgiveness, but because if you don't give it, eats away at you as you're consumed by the hate you feel, which, you know, intellectually I buy into. It's just a really hard thing to do. Emmett, what was your reaction to this uh, rabbi's piece? Well, my reaction is actually to Irene, because we, we've been having this debate for almost almost Back a decade. Forth. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, I think the rabbi is onto something, and, I, and you know, I'm, I agree with the notion of atonement and forgiveness. And, and I actually agree with Irene and in, in what, what she's saying in terms of sensational and surface level apologies. But I think people change. I think there is an inherent uh -uh. possibility that people finish. can change. And, 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 you know, so, I mean, that's why many of us do prison ministry, right? Because somebody has done an awful crime or been accused of an awful crime, but we go in and we believe that their hearts can change. They certainly need to do their time if convicted, but their hearts can change. And I, so, so for me, oh. it's about transformation, not necessarily transaction. So Irene, no, you just said, uh-uh. If it's uh-uh, getting uh -uh. back to poison, if it gets to prison ministry and the answer is uh-uh, then why should anyone ever get out of prison if they don't change? No, no, no. That's see, because that, see, that's too shallow of an explanation. Largely because Thank you very much. Change. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome, Jim. No. Jim, you're on my team. <laughs> I'm just going to sit quietly over here. Go ahead, Irene. Jim, it's excellent, but I call it theology light in that, yes, the person changed because we put places, we put things in place for the person to change. 
You just don't, you know, automatically change because you've been in prison. We set up, it's like Malcolm. Malcolm changed because there were things in, in his prison life that afforded him an opportunity to change. This is my problem here. Forgiveness needs to be transactional because what happens is, is that it sets up this notion. Number one, it doesn't, it doesn't heal. It doesn't, it doesn't add to closure. And it sets up this notion that suffering builds character. There's nothing, and that comes out of bad theology, the notion of redemptive suffering. There's nothing redemptive about suffering. So if it is not transactional that gives the, the aggrieved person, the injured party, a sense of agency, we're just wasting our time. So we've just concluded, um, you know, commemorating the 9-11, uh, 20 years of 9-11, and one of the conversations that have continued, and of, of course Islamophobia certainly existed before 9-11, but um, it, it seems to have been released 20 years ago in the United States in a way like Pandora's box and continues today. And I'm just, you know, wondering what your, your thoughts are. But just, you know, starting with you about, about is, this, is this something that we as a nation can, can move through? You know, we still see so many uh, anti-Muslim uh, hate crimes, uh, elected officials being targeted, and you know, you know, talk about a shallow. Uh, it, it's such a knee-jerk reaction to so many compli- complicated things that happen in the world. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, is there a way that you see for a path for America to try and come to terms with our Islamophobia? Yeah, I mean, you know, this our our, our great nation uh, has lost its moral compass because of the permeating fear that has been, um, you know, unleashed. Uh, because of, you know, the way that we weaponize information, the way that we weaponize technology in terms of media access and, and, and all those kind of things. And we've forgotten uh, what, we, what we see in traumatic and, 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 and tragic moments. You know, when I think about the Boston Marathon bombing here, you find people who are not profiling each other to see, okay, if this is a Muslim person. No, you see somebody laying on the ground with blood coming out of their leg, you go help them. And so it, it seems that in traumatic and, and tragic situations, we rise to the occasion to be human beings. And, and, mm. and all the other times when it seems like everyone is doing their own thing, we forget that we're human beings. And so we've lost our moral compass. And I think we really need to reclaim what does it mean to be a human being that may be even more important than what does it mean to be a Christian or a Muslim, be black or, mm. you know, to be, you know, uh, I'm not Korean. that. Yeah. I'm not, I'm just not buying it. I'm not buying it. Okay, really. I mean, what does it mean to be a human being? Listen, let's get real here. What kind of human being? I mean, it's, I'm, I'm more than just a human being. It has something, there's material reality to say that Irene Monroe is not only black and, and female, but she's a lesbian. So that, that, that doesn't work. But I, I do feel this here. And I, and I see it because I, I've lived not too far, really, from this Islamic center of Boston is here in Cam- It's actually in Cambridge. They do outreach. They help deconstruct these Islamophobic tropes, like all Muslims are Arabs. You know, one of the things is my dear friend who is Indian, Southeast Asian, our, our dear friend, um, her husband, who is Sikh, stopped, had to take his turban off and cut his hair. And she refused to let her little boys uh, grow their hair and wear a turban. So one of the things is, is that we got to look at a Muslim com- uh, community 
as being heterogeneous here. And we got to stop using the Quran to say that, number one, it invites violence. And the, and the real truth about it is that the Islamic religion comes here by way of the slave trade. And so that, that's another thing in terms of, like, not knowing our history. But I just think that, again, we, there's just, we just have to do more in terms of outreach, educating people about what Islam is about. We got to do fellowship. Well, we are so grateful that both of you are back from the summer, <laughs> back together again, uh, racing the fighting. airwaves and, and fighting, discussing. And uh, Emma, congratulations! And Irene, on your I forgive yes. you for what you said about me. Whatever it was, <laughs> okay. whatever. And I forgive you too because it's transactional. There you go. All right, <laughs> Reverend Irene it is Monroe, great to talk to you too. Emma G. Price the Third joining us every week for All Revved Up. Reverend Emma G. Price the Third is the founding pastor. Community of Love Christian Fellowship and the inaugural Dean of Africana Studies at Berklee College of Music and Reverend Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston voice for Detours African American Heritage Trail. All right, coming up, it's time for another edition of Village Voice with poet Richard Blanco. Keep your dial on 89.7 GBH Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio. Sue O'Connell sitting in for Marjorie, who's on jury duty. I'm Jim Browdy. Joining us online to lead another edition of Village Voice, where we discuss poetry and how it can help us better understand our lives and times, is Richard Blanco. For today's Village Voice, it's notable quotables focusing on what poets have said about poetry. Richard is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His new book, How to Love a Country, deals with various socio-political issues that shadow America. Richard Blanco, great to talk to you, as always. Good to be here. And hi, Sue. And uh, notable quotables. I love that. See, you are, you are a poet. I'm a poet, yes. Yeah, so somebody I know is. Let's put it that that's way. A, that's a great rhyme. So, uh, Richard, we're going to let you lead us, us through this uh, today. And, um, you know, what? where would you start? What, what, would, you, what would be your pick? For something well, that uh, is emblematic of of, uh, of of what poetry means. Well, I'll start with what I always like to start with me, um, <laughs> <laughs> so which is the which is the easiest one to discuss, obviously. Um, and please feel free to like jump in and uh, give me some of your favorites, and we can chat about it. I can sort of drive the deep. Um, dive a little bit deeper into these quotes, but these are all obviously some of my favorite quotes. But one a couple things that. Um, um, the things that I always say about poetry, I'll, I'll just read them verbatim here, is that good poetry answers questions, but great poetry asks them. Um, and I'm not sure if I probably stole this from somebody or morphed it into something <laughs> of my own. But uh, I think it's important because um, I think one of, the po- one of the things that poetry is sometimes misunderstood, that it's supposed to reach some kind of final resolution or some kind of you know, bottom line. And in that way, it's not like therapy. Poetry is therapeutic, but it also is not like you, you know, 
poetry doesn't cure your addiction to chocolate and then you move on. <laughs> so it's really always asking questions and, 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 and when you partially answer them, it leads to more questions, it leads to more questions. So for me, it's a constant pursuit of, of life, of the human condition. And I always try to remember that when I go for the easy answer in a poem, um, I, was, I always ask, what am I not asking? Um, and then the other one that I, I think I sort of morphed this from William Carlos Williams in some ways, but the idea that poetry finds the extraordinary and the seemingly ordinary. Um, you know, I think that sometimes we think of poetry as these big grand gestures of things. And really it's about, so it's often about just finding those little moments in our lives that really do mean a universe, but we kind of don't pay attention to them. You know, we skip to the big idea first. So, um, you know, William Carlos classic example of the red wheelbarrow is how, you know, just looking at the seemingly small thing in the world, just, you know, you can extrapolate a whole universe of meaning from. Um, and so I, I often, I, I often, when I'm writing poetry, I always think about what am I not looking at? What am I passing over that is really emblematic of a feeling or a bigger idea? Um, so I, I kind of live by those two adages, those two sort of, um, sort of, um, I guess, rules, if you will, <laughs> for me personally. Um, but any favorites on uh, yeah, at your end or something do, that caught your actually, eye? And by the way, Richard was kind enough to share with us the quotes about poetry by maybe 20 poets. And one that you just mentioned, you know, what you think, you say, what am I missing? Well, this one is sort of a variation on this theme. You quote Jim Morrison, and I'm assuming, I don't want to embarrass myself, this is as in Jim Morrison and the Doors, not yeah. some poet yes. I never heard of. Yes? <laughs> Am I I'm right? assuming that too. I don't know of any point named Jim oh, okay, Morrison. Okay, fine. Except Jim Morrison. <laughs> so Jim Morrison of the Doors says, "If my poetry aims to achieve anything, it's to deliver people from the limited ways in which they see and feel." I mean, I've learned much. More, I've learned more about poetry in the few years with you than I knew about poetry in the rest of my life, which is not enough, but it's something. And that's the takeaway that I have almost every month when we speak to you: is you get a different layer of of people's feeling about something from poetry than you get from living or from prose. And is, that's what he means, right? And, yes, very. Yeah, a lot of these quotes obviously overlap in, in, uh, in, in what they're saying or what their intention is. But what, why I put a couple, uh, why I put Jim Norris in there is because poetry approaches music in so many ways and the way it exists and the way it happens in the author, in the poet, the way it's received by the reader or the listener. Um, and we kind of go through a similar creative process. And part of what I think music does and poets do, and also I guess artists in general, is look very simply. We take we take the time that most of us don't have or or, or haven't committed to of really examining our lives, and we do it out of first sort of a very selfish reason in a way, right? To because we're confused or upset or <laughs> or or heartbroken uh, or elated, and we kind of through the art do that kind of work. And then it becomes a gift to the reader or the listener. And that's why, you know, when we, you know, when we, we hear these songs, they, they, they embed in us and open up ways of understanding because in a way the artist has, we're recognizing that the artist has gone through this process so that we, or opens a door so that we can feel, uh, see and feel things differently, as Jim Morrison says. Um, and I think that's always a very important part of, of poetry. As I, I tell my students uh, on the first day of class, usually, Poetry is the stupidest, most arrogant, selfish thing you can do in the world. And they look at me like, what? 
<laughs> and then I explained, but it's also the most selfless, generous, kind thing you can do because at the end of the day, you're offering this as an artist to the world so that other people can partake in that discovery, in that, in that, in that, uh, that illumination that you have, that you may have had through your own process of working out your own crap. Well, <laughs> Beautifully put. That was very lovely. poetic. Thank you. So, Richard, I, I am uh, extremely practical by nature, you know, not romantic, not nostalgic, you know, really kind of nuts and bolts and kind of boring. So, um, you know, the two quotes that really struck me, of course, the great Oscar Wilde, a poet can survive everything but a misprint. <laughs> and then uh, is it Samuel, Samuel Taylor Col- Coleridge? Coleridge, yes. Yep. The best words in the best order. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I see. I hear you, Sue. I hear you. I, I just had to put, uh, first of all, there's a whole little book uh, on, um, uh, wait, let me find the quote, make sure I got it right here. Uh, uh, there's a whole bit, a whole little wonderful book um, on Oscar Wilde quotes. He's like the most, his quotes are amazing. Yeah, he is so funny. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think, I think what he's aiming at there is that we, you know, poets uh, are so meticulous about, well, about language, obviously, like, I mean, we will debate a comma for like half an hour or three days, you know, like, and, and heaven forbid, like, if something gets misprinted or somewhere, they format it wrong. I mean, it's just like, it's like, it's, you know, like killing your dog, you know, you're just, you can't, but, but he is, he is hilarious in, in the ways that he looks at the world. And I just love, I love that quote. There's another one I just got to say, he says, people at breakfast, people who are intro, wait, how is it? Uh, people that are interesting at breakfast are boring or something like that. <laughs> something like that. And another one, supposedly, I don't know if this is just urban myth, so to speak, but uh, on his deathbed, he says, he said something like, either either the wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> like, <laughs> very oh, well. campy. <laughs> very, I mean, he would be like the equivalent of, I think, of RuPaul. Today. Can you imagine if there <laughs> was the... Twitter, if Oscar Wilde had Twitter? I mean, it just oh, would have my been God. just he, amazing. He, he would be king. And then um, Coldridge's quote, um, which goes back to the romantics as well as uh, William Wordsworth, um, which really the romantics in England, uh, we call the romantic revolution, really, really was a kind of revolution in poetry and it's still a way the a way in which we sort of see and feel and think about poetry today that it that it was as colder said men speaking to men or people speaking to people today but also um the idea that the that it is through through the through the personal experience that universal truth is sort of achieved or consciousness um and Coldridge's quote um it's, it's often it's very pithy and it's very practical and I often remember that too because it is really about where I mean I, I can't explain when you're you're articulating and you change the syntax of a, of a line of poetry it can open up a whole different meaning by just changing the order the the common order in which you would expect to hear something now it's interesting because he has another quote about prose which he defines as uh, words in the best order not the best words in the best order. <laughs> And what that what that sort of is implying is that prose is different in the sense that it's the narrative that rules or drives. So it's just the order of the words. But in poetry, it's not it's it's the best words in the best order. And also what I tell my students sometimes don't go for the expected word. Right. Um, You know, the red car. Well, what about the crimson car? What about the scarlet car? What about, 
you know, poetry is often full of those, the, the best word choices that surprise and open up meaning and delight in different ways. So I think that's part of what uh, Samuel uh, Coldridge is saying, too. So, yeah, but uh, very concise, very pithy, very t- much more practical than some of these, as you said, too. <laughs> you know, you, you have a politician or two, and actually you have a, don't have a politician who I'm going to quote about poetry in a second. But John F. Kennedy, you have saying... When power leads man toward arrogance, poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power power narrows the area of man's concern, poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of existence. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. Uh, Do you know, was this said about his selection of Robert Frost? Or was this, what was the, do you know the context for the Kennedy uh, analysis of poetry? I, 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 you know, I got to. I got to be honest, I was going to look it up before the show, and I actually read this quote at the 50th anniversary of his death at the, uh, at the JFK Center uh, there in Boston. Um, but it, I think it was a speech. It was, I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't about Robert Frost. Um, and I, I, maybe you can let a, look it up real quick, Jim. But, um, um, yeah, I just found it so amazing that a, that a president would speak about poetry this mm-hmm. way. Um, and, you know, in, in such an amazing context, especially the last line, when power corrupts, poetry yeah. cleanses. And I think it, it gets back to, you know, some of the things we were already talking about, right? When we, the poetry is, is, is so based on looking past what are expected truths or, um, or, you know, or, you know, commonly, commonly accepted things, right? A poem, a poet, a poem digs deeper and looks at what's not, what's not happening, um, as I always like to say, you know, when, when things are going good, um, poets are always like, mm, what's messed up? <laughs> and when things are really messed up, um, poets are like, well, there's always hope and light at the end of the tunnel. We're always seeing past, um, past. And I think what it also says is that um, that line also says, you know, it's a different kind of language. So political language is much more about persuasion it's much more about spinning it's much more about i mean a poet is not afraid to be honest with themselves and therefore be honest with the world even if that means sort of in a way implicating oneself um so i i i I really love uh kennedy's um just being able to say that um it leads us it leads us back to so much well, let me just tell you what, actually, as you were speaking, I looked up the quote, and here's what else he went on to say in that same quote. The artist, however faithful to his personal vision of reality, becomes the last champion of the individual mind and sensibility against an intrusive society and an officious state. The great artist is thus a solitary figure. He has, as Frost said, quote, a lover's quarrel with the world. That's a pretty good line. <laughs> In pursuing yeah. his perceptions of reality, he must often sail against the current time. This is not a popular role. You know, the other politician's quote, which I think probably everybody listening to the show has heard, even though I'm not sure it fits the theme of what you tried to put together, is the great Mario Cuomo quote. And I hope I get it exactly right, but it's very close regardless. You campaign in poetry, you govern in prose, which I think is perfectly describes the difference between uh, saying you want to lead people and having the job of leading people and running a government, it sort of sums it up in however number of words it is as quickly as possible. By the way, one of our colleagues, Chelsea, just wrote that the uh, quote that you and I both read from Kennedy, 
He said in February of 64, it was in his tribute to Robert Frost. So, as oh, always, Chelsea what? gets <laughs> I was to wrong, the bottom of, of things, yes. <laughs> it's also great to have, you know, to think about a leader who is speaking about poetry and you believe him, right? Like, you know that he actually is a fan of poetry and thinks about poetry. It's not like just something you think they gave him to read, right? Oh, that he wrote exactly it and he right. did it. Like, you know, it's 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 just an astonishing... I hope we get yeah. there again. <laughs> I, I ran across that that quote actually, Jim, and I almost put it in there too because it it, it did speak a lot. You know, we see this all the time, right? Campaign speeches are always about riling up emotions, which is kind of what poetry does. It's about it's based on yeah. in, in sort of um, kind of you know inciting a, a certain emotion, whatever whether that emotion is fear or or hope or um, whatnot, and we see how those different things work in politicians. Um, that's what gets you to vote, right? You know, we often vote just on a feeling rather than so much, um, well, I should say us, <laughs> not no. everybody. Maybe the irresponsible voter. But, um, but even so, even, even if you're looking at the issues, it's often if you don't like, if, if you don't feel something in your heart, or to use a cliche, um, there's something different, right? And, so, and then comes the practicality of having to govern, right? Um, which becomes prose, which becomes you know, a whole different, uh, and we see that all the time. Often right? bad prose, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah often right. bad prose. Right? So, Richard, we only have time for one more. Pick one more that did it for you and fill in the blanks for us. Um, sure. I think uh, um, let me pick, um, uh, let's see. It just um, well, we might as well do a really popular one here. That's by Emily Dickinson. Mm. It says, "If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, <laughs> I know that is poetry." I love that. Um, I should have picked that. I love that. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Which is funny to think about. Supposedly, such a, a recluse life for Emily Dickinson to come up with such a such a like such a I don't know such a really startling. <laughs> well, she <laughs> like, had a very active uh, interior life, you know. <laughs> right. And and I think this gets back to how music is too, you know, like you know when you hear that song, you, you know, you hear a whole album, but there's that one song that you just know like and you know it's not why I say you, you can't always put a word into how a poem why a poem exists in you or, or resonates in you or just makes your head blow up, you know, um, because it's it's often uh, touching on emotions that we're not we ourselves are not very con- completely conscious of, um, and but it is it is that feeling, um, and uh, I teach a class uh, or a little workshop on master poems, and and we look at it, what are those poems that sort of just live on in us, and we like go back to them over and over again, and every time we have that that feeling of our head blown off and it often is is more it's 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 often more than the sum of its parts you can have good poems that yeah you know whatnot but there's this one poem that somehow just everything comes together and i think is what it touches a deep psychological nerve about the human condition that we again aren't always conscious of in the same ways that again with music we can we can we can accept that feeling and not necessarily always know know the uh, the uh, intellectual uh, sort of meaning behind a song. And I think that happens in poetry sometimes. 
Well, Richard Blanco, it's a pleasure chatting with you and sharing As this always, with you. As always, Thank it's you. so great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. Take Thank it you. easy. You too. Richard Blanco joins us regularly for Village Voice, where we discuss poetry and how it can help us to better understand our lives and times. Richard is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His new book, How to Love a Country, deals with various socio-political issues that shadow America. Coming up, as Yom Kippur approaches... Whether you observe or not, are there lessons for all of us about atonement and forgiveness? Keep your dial on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. So O'Connell sitting in for Marjorie. I'm Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price about the lessons Yom Kippur has for all of us. It was prompted by this recent piece in the New York Times by a rabbi from L.A., David Wolpe. He writes about the power of atoning for sins, but also about the act of forgiveness. And there's a lot of anger in the country, obviously. It's highly divisive time. We're sparring about everything from vaccines to voting rights. The rabbi writes, anger at others, even when merited, can be personally destructive. It gnaws away at us, embittering the life of the hater. Forgiving your neighbor is one way of loving them and learning to love oneself. We're opening the lines asking you, we don't have much time, so call quickly, please. Whether you observe Yom Kippur or, or not, this is not a religious thing. Whether uh, Are you willing to take the lessons of Yom Kippur to heart? If the pandemic has made you more angry, as it has me, how about making you more compassionate towards others. If you have disdain for people who don't get vaccinated, for example, you're open to forgiving that person, or instead of going high, is the gravitational pull to go low and feel vengeance towards those who have wronged you or others. And by the way, it doesn't have to just be about the vaccine. The whole issue is about atonement and forgiveness and whether you're a forgiving kind of person or if you're a vengeful kind of person, like I'm embarrassed to admit that I am more days than not. 877 301 897. Are you forgiving, kind of soul? Or no? um, I am accepting. So uh, if there's a, a behavior variation. someone continues in, I don't expect them to change. I also hate the uh, amend step in the AA book. I hate it when people come knocking on my door and want to ask forgiveness and make amends and make me relive the trauma that they put me through. Oh, so over life, you know, when folks have said, hi, can we have coffee? I said, look, if you're on that step, I forgive you. I don't want to relive it. You can move on as long as there's change. Um, and, on, you know, as far as me asking for forgiveness, um, you know, I never really do anything wrong. So it doesn't. Beautifully put. <laughs> Thank you. 877 <laughs> Eighty-nine seventy. Let's get right to the yep. calls because time is short. Paul, you're in Worcester. You would be first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Sue and Jim. This is such a Marjorie topic. I'm sorry. She's not <laughs> right. It is indeed. Now, forgiveness um, is not about letting letting something that somebody did go. It's letting it go from your head and your heart, not letting it control you. Um, and understand that, you know, we all screw up and you know, okay, well, if you don't want them in your life anymore, then you don't want them in their life anymore. But that doesn't mean that you, you have to remember every day that this hurt, horrible hurt that they did. You have to forgive the situation. You have to forgive the, what, you, what you went through and, and, just, and just come out the other side and say, you know what, we all go through this stuff, and why, why can't we just get along? 
You sound like you've been th- you've thought a lot about this, Paul. Uh, once in a while. <laughs> Meaning all the time. All the time. So how do you, uh, I, by the way, I would like to be like you described. How do you get there? Uh, uh, how do you get there? Um, I think you got to focus on other things and realize that every once in a while, somebody that, you know, you feel like you shouldn't forgive or whatever is going to pop in your head and you're going to think, I haven't thought about this person in three months. Why am I wasting my time on this mm-hmm. when they're gone? And that, and that to me is the forgiveness, if you will. It doesn't, it doesn't mean forgetting, you know, somebody shot you in the, in the shoulder. It's moving they, on. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, it is. It, absolutely. It's moving on and forgiving the situation and saying, you know what, I'm done with this. And I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to be a good person and try and try and be a good person. That's good. Yep. Paul, good thanks call. as good always for, you. for your call. Appreciate sounds, it. Sounds like moving on without that person, though, which is also sometimes helpful, right? So if, you're, if it's an ongoing issue or something that was really bad, not having them in your life makes it easier to forgive them. But you I remember think. when you're Ruby or when your kid was little, and I'm sure you use the expression, which all parents, young mm-hmm. kids, you're stuck on something. Get off it. I, I get stuck on things. Often the smaller, the more stuck, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say. And I want to do what Paul does. Yeah. I have no ability. So Ruby no has a list. To get unstuck. Ruby has a list of everything I've ever done wrong. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I am not kidding. She has a list, and like every now and then, like she's 21 now, and oh she, we were having God. an argument over the weekend. She said, "Do you remember when I was nine and you said this to me?" Love and I'm kid. like, "Oh my God, yeah, the two of you. It's like living with Jim Brownie all the time. That's how it is." Let's go to uh, Barbara in Gloucester. Barbara, welcome. Hi, Barbara. Thanks, Colin. I hope you're having a good day. We are. are. Thank you. So um, it's interesting that this subject comes up. I don't practice young before, but I was reading about um, the Kennedy family's division over the mm-hmm. forgiveness of Sirhan Sirhan. Sirhan, yeah. Yeah, and I think about, you know, Ethel Kennedy, you know, going to that church on a weekly basis, all of them. And I guess what I want to say, basically, is that forgiveness isn't even really about the other person. It's about teaching yourself to let go, Mm -hmm. because you are what you see. How else would you know whether to be angry if you haven't performed such an act in your own life? We often remember when we're heroes, but we quite often forget when we're jerks. So when you don't forgive, it's like drinking poison and wait for the other guy to die. A lot of deep thoughts today. Well, well I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, Sam, that is really a it's thoughtful great. comment. Barbara, thank you for sharing it with us. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. So uh, do you, when you do get stuck, and I yeah. assume you do at yeah. times, obviously not as much as I do, do you try to shake it? Or you, you know, I have to say, I, I, I'm, it's even worse. I often revel in the stuckness of my anger at other people who I felt either doing me wrong Mm -hmm. or I have to say this is the only kind thing I'll say about myself. Usually often the anger is directed at somebody who's done something horrible societally, if Mm -hmm. you know what I mean. I mean, it isn't to me directly, so it's not all quite as selfish and self-focused as it sounds, but I just cannot get by almost any of it ever. I, I think I have a sort of genetic build of looking at the long game. You know, I think I think there's just something that that makes me say, okay, this person, you know, even if it's someone I don't know, maybe it's an elected official that's done horrible things. And I I look at them. I mean, during this 9-11 commemoration, I've looked at people like George Bush and thought of things that happened. 
um, while we're in this somber, you know, remembrance mm-hmm. of and, and coming together. So I, I don't think I forget it, but it's not as active for me. How about and, Trump? Um, Trump, I, 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 I've put Trump in a box and I dug a hole in the back of my yard and I've buried it very, very <laughs> deep. It's the yeah, Irish. I think we should leave it there. Yeah, that's Thank the you. Irish attempt, you know, okay. just bury your feelings as deeply as you can. <laughs> Let's go to Heidi in Arlington. We're talking about atonement and forgiveness and that sort of thing. Welcome to the show, Heidi. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, what interests me are the words and the derivation of the words. I, I'm a Jew and I have a real hard time with sin because it sounds very Christian and very judgmental to me. Mm. And when you when you go to the Hebrew, it's a chait, which is missing the mark, and it's from archery. Like, oh, I missed the mark which is, I think, kinder to other people and t- kinder to oneself, that, golly, sometimes we miss the mark. And there are levels of this. There are different words of, you know, more intensity of what you've, you know, you, of how much you've missed the mark. And I'm looking this year to, to uh, forgive myself and to realize that, well, golly, I've, I've missed the mark, and, and other people miss the mark, and, and you know, that's, that's part of being human. Boy, all of you are unbelievable. Amazing. Heidi, Amazing. thanks for that, too. This is rather embarrassing. I'm going to use that the next time I get yelled at by my daughter. I'm going to say, I missed the mark. <laughs> <laughs> See how that goes. No, but you know what's obvious from these first handful of calls is people have thought about this. Yes. So I actually think about it, too. I just don't get places where I'd like yeah. to go. But virtually every one of these people so far has totally gotten where they want to go, it sounds like. All right, let's go to Lisa. Lisa's calling us from the car. Lisa, Hi, Lisa. welcome. Hi there, how are you? Excellent. So I am, like, having this huge epiphany right now. Like, I have, I've never been one to be able to forgive. Mm-hmm. I can ask for forgiveness and say I'm sorry, but I've never been able to, like, it's that little bit of Irish in me. And... I've never thought of forgiving the way that some of your colleagues have described it. I'm like, it's like a whole new meaning to me. And I'm like, I better like totally rearrange how I'm thinking about this. And So what are you going to do with people, that, Lisa? Like, In all seriousness, what are you going to do with well, the, what you've learned? Well, I think part of it means that, like, I'm, because so often in forgiving somebody, they need to want to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to. They totally feel that they're in the right, what they've said and what point. they've done. And but now I'm kind of realizing that what oh, did we lose Lisa? Is oh, more there she is. Okay. Me, and I, I really am just feeling lighter right now. Lisa, well, you know, you mentioned the color. You were, we were joking about. I was just joking about being Irish American, and you bring it up as well. Uh, you know, I think culturally there is also that. That marriedness to grudges, you know, there's that joke, I've forgotten everything but but the grudge, you know, and I think all of us have members of our family that aren't speaking to each other, but we don't know why, and they don't either. Uh, It does seem culturally also a hurdle that sometimes you have to, to overcome. Yeah, it's, but I just, I'm very grateful for this conversation today, wow. so thank you. It's great. Lisa, you're really nice to call in and say thank that, you. and I feel the same way about the callers so far it's as amazing. well, Lisa. Thanks for the call. Let me repeat for people who just tuned in a few minutes ago, the thing I mentioned when we were talking to the Revs a couple of, whenever it was, a half hour ago or something, 
the moment that really stayed with me, sort of a la Lisa, that I could never get over, was the day after Roof uh, killed those nine mm-hmm. people in the church in Charleston. I think it was the day after. It was very soon yep. after. And one of the mothers was in, I believe, in the courtroom. You're nodding, so I think I got it yep. close to right. But the gist of it is right. And she said she forget, she forgave the shooter. And either then on the stand or subsequently in an interview or something, she talked about the reason for forgiveness, because obviously D- Dylan Roof wasn't asking for it and he wasn't apologizing or atoning or anything, was because of the impact the failure to forgive had on her and the anger that she felt because of the loss of somebody she loved. And, you know, again, intellectually, I am totally where she is. It was one of the most moving things I've ever seen and heard in my life. But how hard is it to oh, be that kind of imagine. person? Obviously, she's imagine. deeply religious, and she talked about that. Mm-hmm. But how hard is it to be? I mean, I just can't even. Would be beyond me. That's, that's for sure. Debbie, we only have a minute left. You're calling from Canton, and the minute is yours. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Uh, I've always been impressed by something that they have in the Jewish religion, was that their Day of Atonement comes after New Year's, not before. Mm-hmm. Very often we think, New Year's, okay, we can throw everything else in the garbage, but you have time afterwards to atone, and I think what atonement means, you've got to try to do something about what you've done. First, you've got to recognize you've done it, and then you have to try to fix it in some way. And that is atonement to me. Yeah, and just don't knock on uh, Sue's door <laughs> and try to make amends. That's the key. <laughs> I forgive you if in Sue advance. O'Connell is the person you've Everybody done wrong. Everybody Thank you. No, for I'm the... not saying I forgive you. I'm trying to fix what I did. Understood. Right. Not... I'm sorry. Great. No, it was... no, 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 it was great. Debbie, thanks for the call. By the way, thanks, there are Debbie. a ton of people who've written great books on forgiveness and apologies apologies in particular and what makes an apology sincere as opposed to one of those phony political apologies if anyone was offended you know that kind of mm-hmm. uh, thing but I, I i love these kind of discussions so we're done it was, I saw, it was so great that was uh, such it an was, unexpected wonder and far better people than at least one of us if <laughs> both not of us, both no, of both us of right us, I think it's so clear. sue yes uh, I would like you to know from an unnamed source, I am told that even though Marjorie was on jury duty today, yeah. she was sprung. Oh, and as a result, she will return tomorrow. Yes. Sue, it was wonderful to have you. Great as to see you. Always. Thank you so much, Jim. And uh, thank you so much for listening, all of you. Uh, you can keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast. That is on iTunes. Tomorrow, as you know, is Election Day in Boston and a bunch of surrounding communities. And as we often do, we invite the major candidates for a quick call-in. Tomorrow, all the candidates for Boston mayor on Election Day will give us a call. You'll hear from them, and then we'll talk to you. It doesn't matter if you live in Boston or not, because obviously we're all invested in what happens in Boston, whether we live there or not. We'll have that conversation. Uh, Tonight, uh, I'm going to talk to a woman from New Hampshire who won a gold medal in the Paralympics swimming and is one of the most impressive stories I have ever heard in my life. She is amazing. She will join me. We're going to talk about all the latest COVID stuff, some of which uh, Sue and I discussed earlier in the show. 
I want to thank Chelsea Mers, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Connolly, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Tauber. Our engineer, of course, is John McClough Parker. Offsite engineer is Dave Goldstein. Thank you all for uh, being with us again. Marjorie will be back tomorrow, as will I. A hearty thanks to Sue. Watch her on NECN, NBC10, Current. And what's that current thing called again? It's called Current on oh, NBCLX. Current. <laughs> current it's called, called Current. current. Yeah. That's good to know. Thank you very <laughs> much. Powered by NECN. And, of course, Bay Windows in the South End News. Sue, talk to you soon. Uh, see you all tomorrow at 11. Thanks so much for being with us today, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye. <laughs>